Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. I'm Drew. What's shaking? Hey, hey. Hello, everyone. So, today, we've uh, recently spent quite a bit of time going over dishonorable mentions uh, in, in the preparation for our DC Top 25 comics of all time. We thought that we'd balance out uh, some of our haterade and some of our <laughs> negativity with something positive and uplifting because we do want to educate y'all about what good comics are. We want to bring the torch of enlightenment <laughs> and and well-being. You know, we want to be the bearers of the message of good comics. To Albert, you. Albert is a prophet of comic books. And yeah. I am just a faithful assistant. I claim no <laughs> divine powers whatsoever. I, I do not guarantee any type of enlightenment. I'm just here to talk about a comic book I enjoy. But Albert will, you know, he'll he'll take you into the light. We can't be co-prophets. There can only be one, like the Highlander. <laughs> <laughs> there can only be one, like Rob Liefeld's prophet. Or I don't even know if it was Rob Liefeld. <laughs> yeah, that was a Rob Liefeld book. Yeah. He is the true prophet. <laughs> Weren't there a bunch of prophets? Well, that's a, a, a thing for a later time if we ever decide to discuss prophet. But yeah, there were a bunch of prophets. I don't even remember if they like called themselves prophets. But John anyways. Prophet, wasn't that his name? That's the thing. It was his name, but I don't know if like his... I, I don't know, what is it? Was it was like a species? series of clones or something, wasn't he? Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Okay, so... They're not a species, but their designation was profit. I don't know. But that is to say, we're here to teach you all about good comics. So why did we uh, talk about profit? <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently Drew is here just to talk about good comics, and I'm here to start a cult. So <laughs> I guess uh, we're not done drinking that hater, Ed, because we still have to make fun of a Rob Liefeld comic. <laughs> it's not making fun of. It's It's obvious. <laughs> Well, it's you know, too easy. you know, Prophet is coming back again. Yeah, he's uh, been posting up art of it on his Instagram because I think they're it's either yeah. a new series or it could just be a one shot. But I think a bunch of different artists are are doing something. It, it it might be like I can't remember if it's an original story or if they're just reprinting the old issue one from the '90s, but with a bunch of variant covers from a uh, you know current popular artists. Like I I think. That would be I whack, think, uh, dude. Ed Piscor and Jim Rugg are both doing covers for it. That's Hopefully awesome. Something for it. That would be awesome to get a Ed Piscor Jim Rugg joint out of it. But the idea that they, if they like, end up repackaging that number one, that would uh, <laughs> that'd be lame, dude. That'd be super lame. Yeah, I mean, I I can't remember exactly what they're doing, so so don't hold me to that. It was news I read at some point in the yeah. past couple months, and promptly forgot, forgot because it wasn't very important to me <laughs> yeah i think it says something that i find the version of profit that was written by a sexual harasser to be more interesting than the idea of his profit <laughs> i don't condone that behavior by the way <laughs> <laughs> i feel like that goes without saying but <laughs> no i think it's good that you said that <laughs> Okay, okay, okay. We didn't waste any words on it. I didn't waste any words on that. 
there was value in in clarifying my position on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, this year is Image's 30th anniversary. Yeah. So that could be why uh he's trying to bring back profit for a special thing. Yeah. Uh I mean, I I guess I I don't know, man. Rob Liefeld is and and profit particularly aren't like I don't know. I I I don't think that when people think Rob Liefeld, the first thing that they think of is profit. But what's the first thing you think of when you hear Rob Liefeld? I don't know. Young Blood, X Force. Oh, okay, okay. Feetless characters. Oh yeah, Feetless Deadpool. Characters. Yeah, that's the first thing I usually think of. Is like, hey, take a look. Apparently, uh, just hovers on stumps. <laughs> yeah, it's like the. Right, their legs kind of end right before where their ankles usually start. Yeah, there's always like, like smoke that covers up feet, or their feet are off-panel. Yeah, you know, in in uh Rob Liefeld's Marvel universe, everyone just has bloody stumps and they're just hovering <laughs> <laughs> on bloody stumps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyways, that was a heck of a detour. <laughs> that really was. You that think that really needs was. to be edited was... out, or should I just leave it in there? I would prefer to keep it in because I want our fans to know just what the madness behind our uh, creative process is. Just okay, okay. how insane we are uh, <laughs> beneath the surface. Like this, this podcast is really just uh, a screen capture of our our stream of consciousness you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's it's a, a peek into just the random gibberish that we spew yeah on a t- constant basis yeah basically during the entire week we don't talk to anybody and all of our all of our conversational desires and our comic book topics that we envision sharing with somebody they're just bottled up inside so by the time we record this (laughs) everything just kind of explodes in this volcanic eruption of madness yeah it's super hot yeah that's why i'm not wearing any pants right now (laughs) that's right kids between the gutters is the pantsless podcast (laughs) (laughs) oh we should uh we should call it the pantsless cast okay yeah yeah uh We'll let's, s- let's try to trademark it, try to make it a thing that happens, and, uh, you know, see if we can get some new followers. And maybe, yeah. hopefully, not lose a few followers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> I do think that the stream of consciousness approach that we took to our introduction, to our opening today, does kind of fit with the comic book that we're discussing, the the honorable mention that we're going to be discussing today. Do you uh, do you want to announce it, Drew? Sure, man. So today we're going to be talking about Enigma by Peter Milligan and Duncan Figredo with color art by Sherilyn Van Valkenburg and letters by John Costanza. So this is originally a DC comic that was published in 1993 under their Vertigo line. It was an eight-issue miniseries, one of the earliest Vertigo comics. It came out, I think it might have been the second new Vertigo series to launch. So when Vertigo uh, began, 
they they took some of the existing comics they had, such as Sandman, uh, you know, Neil Gaiman's Sandman, Shade the Changing Man by Peter Milligan and uh, Hellblazer, a few other things. And those all became, uh, they all got slapped with the Vertigo label, you know, in the middle of their runs. And then they just, they also launched a few new titles. And Enigma was one of the first ones that came out under that line. It was uh, Vertigo Comics, in, in case uh, you don't remember, it was started by Karen Berger, who was a pretty prominent editor uh, with DC, basically from the Alan Moore era, I think, like right around the time that uh, he was doing Swamp Thing in the 80s. And uh, currently, currently Karen Berger uh, is now curating her own line of comics at Dark Horse mm. under the name under the imprint Burger Books. So she she ended up leaving DC a l- few years ago, a little bit before they ignominiously killed Vertigo. She left DC uh, and did some freelance editing for a while. And I guess she found herself at uh, Dark Horse. Now she's got this line called Burger Books, which is essentially like, you know, a spiritual successor to, to Vertigo. And recently, uh, just a few months ago, Burger Books did a reprinting of Enigma in a really nice hardcover edition. It's called it's called the Definitive Edition. So I would highly recommend that. It's a really good value. It's only 25 bucks for a really thick hardcover. There's a ton of extras, really good paper stock. There's even a brand new cover with a beautiful design by... Duncan Figredo. It even has uh, one of those those you know ribbon bookmarks. Is that what you call them? Oh, when nice. They have it sewn into the book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I don't know if there's an official name for that. I I think just ribbon bookmark is a pretty adequate uh, description of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So even though right now it's being published by Dark Horse, this is a DC book originally so that's why it's in our top 25 honorable mentions and just as a a reminder of what we use as our criteria when we were coming up with our our list we looked at books read them reread them and tried to judge them based on these four criteria craft originality impact and withstanding the test of time so those are the four the four uh, benchmarks that we'll be discussing from the vantage point of Enigma as we begin our discussion in a bit. Was there anything else that you wanted to say about the book, Albert? Um, no, I, I think you adequately, I more than adequately covered all of the uh, all of the uh, information and the details concerning the production of the book. Um, There is one anecdote about the book. Originally, I do know that it started out as a pitch for this uh, would-be imprint, uh, this would-be comic book imprint that Disney was planning to do in the 90s called Touchmark. Yeah, if you can believe it, Disney was trying to get into the comic book game back in the early 90s. And I guess they had 
come up with this line called touch mark, you know, kind of like how they had touchstone pictures where mm-hmm. they would pr- uh, publish, I guess, adult oriented material, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I, from what I remember, Enigma was going to be one of the early titles and another one that was in the works for them was Mercy. It was a, it ended up being uh, another Vertigo book. But that one was by uh, J.M.D. Mateus and a painter named Paul Johnson, I believe. Mm. That one ended up being, I think, 64 pages. So it was like a prestige format one shot. Um, But uh, the editor at Touchmark was supposed to be this or it was this guy named Art Young. And he had a he had some influence in the creation of Enigma as well. But when when I, I guess. I don't know the story behind Touchmark and and why Disney decided not to go through with their comic book line, but for whatever reason they ended up not doing it. And Art Young moved over to DC, at the Vertigo office, and he brought Enigma and Mercy, maybe something else, uh, with him. So he, yeah. And if you, if you if you look at if you get the hardcover edition, there's some pretty good extras in in the book where you have a lengthy introductory essay by milligan there's like at least 30 or 40 pages of extras from duncan figredo's archives where you can see his his artwork um in various stages and he's got some commentary as well and and both of them uh discuss the influence of of art young in helping them uh you know really make this book everything that it could be um i guess the one thing that i could add is i could probably give just a you know try to give a brief description of what the the book is about yeah 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 so enigma follows uh a character by the name of michael what's his name last name michael michael smith michael smith and uh he's i don't really know how to describe him i guess he's he's he almost seems like a a guy who's just droning on through the mon uh the the monotony of life until one day he starts to notice that characters are showing up from uh his a beloved not not even beloved but from characters are beginning to appear in the real world characters from a comic book that he liked as a child and it was a short-lived comic at that something that only ended after three issues and he feels like there's some sort of connection between their appearance in the real world and him and and he himself you know there's he thinks that there's some sort of connection between their appearance and uh and and just his existence and Mm -hmm. he just goes on this journey to 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 discover what 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 that is what what that connection might be and uh you know it ends up being this is gonna sound kind of corny but like very <laughs> very what uh, a, a a journey of self-discovery oh yeah 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 what'd you think i said <laughs> i i totally missed what you said I, I i think you got cut off on my end or or maybe i'm just saying that to cover up my lack of attention to what you were saying <laughs> That's right. This entire podcast isn't necessarily two people talking to each other. It's just each of us politely waiting for our uh, opportunity to talk. 
<laughs> All I know is that once Albert stops saying stuff, I can say stuff. <laughs> exactly. When Drew talks, I just hear birds chirping. Uh but yeah, uh, was there any detail or uh, yeah, any detail that you wanted to include in terms of uh, the story, or do you feel that accurately covers it? I think that's a more than adequate description of the story. It it's I think when we talk about the plot of this, it's it sounds pretty straightforward, but yeah. really what this book. What makes this book shine is the execution. Um, yeah. And I, I've said this a bunch of times, but Peter Milligan is one of my two favorite comic book writers ever. And Enigma is one of his best works. Like this is the only reason this isn't on the top 25 is because we had those specific criteria set before us. But if I was just picking my top 25 favorite DC Comics, this would be in the top 10, probably top 5 for me yeah. personally, just in terms of favorites. I mean, like I, I just have a lot of love for this comic. I think I think it's also fair to say that we've just had so much to choose from. It's It's been a hard process, which, you know, which should speak for just how hard it... Uh, I mean, the fact that it's taking us, uh, you know, as long as it is to finalize our our top 25 list it it, it's a testament to how hard this entire process was for us Mm -hmm. you know it's it it might not be akin to us deciding which child would uh would live and which child would die i mean although if i had it my way all children would die so it is a pretty easy decision yeah it is a pretty easy decision (laughs) You, you made it sound like it was something you'd have to struggle over but when it comes down to it man it's like you don't even have to think about it I was putting myself in the shoes of someone sane and who likes children. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> yeah, so that's that's our uh, plot. I guess I'll, I'll start off by asking you, Drew. Um, mm-hmm. Could you give us a description of what your experience with this book is? Like, how did you first notice it how did you come across it like your initial impressions of it going back going back from way back when so like i was saying earlier this book came out originally in its serialization in 1993 so i was only 10 years old way too young to to know what this was i did not read it when it originally came out um i mean even if i did come across it i don't think it would have been the thing that my young self would have been drawn to. And if I had uh-huh. picked it up, I wouldn't have been able to understand what I was looking at. This this isn't a comic for for kids. You know, this is a comic that really, it, it demands a little bit more attention uh, from adults, even just to, to really appreciate, I think. Like, you, it's not something where if you don't, if, if you don't like to read, in general, like this probably isn't going to appeal to you, but if you enjoy the experience of reading and trying new things, then this will absolutely be right up your alley. And I know this because when I got older and found myself getting back into comics when I was in college, uh, specifically getting back into Western comics, uh, you know, like your, your, uh, 
American and or North American and British style of comics. Um, this was one of the things that I had picked. I picked up pretty early on in that process. Um, so I had gone into Peter Milligan in pretty early on in college. Like I think what it was was just that the comic store in my college town at the time had a bunch of old sets of different runs of things like complete stories either miniseries or just full runs of stuff by a single writer like they would they would collect those and put them into these uh sets and sell these sets for pretty cheap like you like i feel like nowadays if you went to a store you would find sets like that but they would be you know probably close to cover price yeah but but at that time this was the early 2000s um, and that's the store there in Davis. They had sets where things you could get like a, depending on what it was, you could get maybe um, a 12 issue run of something for, for like, I don't know, six or eight bucks, you know? So it was maybe 10 bucks or something, you know, like it was definitely less than cover price. And every once in a while they would have 50% off sales. So things were even cheaper. Mm, mm. And that's, that's how, a great deal, dude. Yeah, so I just ended up taking chances on random stuff that I never would have tried, you know? Like, it was stuff that came out in the 90s, but I was too young to appreciate it. Or it had come out during the time when when uh, I lost interest in superhero books. So I remember coming across... It wasn't Enigma, but I came across The Extremist, which was also an early mm. Vertigo book. It was a four-issue miniseries by... Peter Milligan and Ted McKeever. And it was it was really strange because the cover of the extremist, I don't know if you remember the cover of the first issue, but it in a way, if you're just glancing at it, it kind of looks like a superhero. It's a guy like in this uh black It's like a bondage suit, right? Suit. Yeah, but if you if you pay attention to it, it's actually a bondage costume or a bondage yeah. outfit. Yeah. And like, you know, I had no idea what it was at the time. I was just like grabbing stuff and I picked that up because it was, you know, all four issues for like a dollar. And it was something that I had never read before and it had a cool cover. So I was like, yeah, I'll take a chance on this. I just wanted to expose my mind to all sorts of comics. So I was just grabbing stuff. I read that comic and it totally made Peter Milligan my favorite writer, you know. So I after that, I just started seeking out all of his work that I could possibly find. And uh, one day, I think it might have been uh, at some point during a holiday, I was back home in San Francisco and I went over to the Isotope when they were at their old location on Noriega. And I was just looking at the shelves, man, and, and they had a trade paperback of Enigma. And I didn't know much about it, but it had Peter Milligan's name on it. So I picked it up and flipped through it. Art looked cool, so I, I ended up buying it, and it turned out to be one of the best decisions of my life. Nice, nice. Which probably says a lot about the decisions I make in life. <laughs> Buying a comic book is one of the best decisions I've ever made. Hey, man, do not be ashamed of that. Buying, buying a comic book, a good comic at that, that's a great decision because there are a lot of people out there who buy a lot of bad comics, and they're proud of that. And That's true. You know what? They got nothing to be proud of. So, you know, you you 
don't don't deny yourself that you has Thanks, done something man. with your life. Thank you, man. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. you make me feel good about myself again, Albert. I I'm the wind you. beneath your wings. <laughs> yeah, I am you constantly. Up, man. Exactly, I'm lifting you up, and I'm trying to build you up as I am trying to do for all of our listeners. That's why we here. Thank you, man. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I read Enigma, and I just enjoyed it man I, I just enjoyed the heck out of it it was one of those books where after i read it i wanted to tell all my other comic book buddies about it and i think at that that was when i kind of realized that it might not be for everybody because i i don't think my my roommate really enjoyed it like it, he was someone who would go to the comic shop with shanice and me every every wednesday you know and we we'd buy all the superhero comics and stuff but uh i had let him borrow my copy of Enigma. And I was like, dude, you got to read this. This is, this is some mind expanding stuff. Like it, it blew me away. And I, I think he read it. He was, he was polite about it. And he was like, yeah, was, I guess it was all right, but I wasn't really feeling what you were feeling from it or getting whatever you got out of it. Um, and I wanted to slap him. <laughs> nice. Anything that makes you want to slap another man, like, we should all feel so fortunate to find something that we're that passionate about. Yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, uh, yeah, it's just a comic that after I read it, I wanted to share it with people. And then I also had to reread it, you know, because it, it's something where I knew right away that this was something with, with depth and something that I would enjoy even more as I revisited it over the years. You know, it's kind of like, kind of like, uh, something like Watchmen, you know, where Watchmen is something you read it once and you can just really appreciate and enjoy it. And then you read it again and then you start picking up all the narrative tricks and little details in the craft. So you start appreciating it, appreciating it even more, you know, and every time you reread a book like that, or a comic like that you just find new details that jump out at you and you know things that you might not have seen the first time around so it's got all this uh lasting power just a lot of replay value re reread value yeah no absolutely um yeah just to piggyback on like your thoughts it's uh uh so this was like for me this was a book that i was not uh, familiar with at all uh, i'd even go so far as to say like when uh this book first came to my intention peter milligan was a completely unknown uh unknown quantity to me uh, Wait, when did you uh, so, come across it so when you mentioned that this was a book that you read and that you were uh recommending to everybody i was one of the people that you recommended it to so that was you probably the ignored first, you, didn't you i probably ignored you <laughs> <laughs> is that what you said <laughs> um no well so uh i didn't ignore you like uh you know me and you we jaw about comics i like talking to you about comics so um a big part of this podcast and and we've we've had this discussion offline like you uh but a big part of this podcast is uh for me at least is uh, my enjoyment comes from actually listening to Drew talk about a lot of these 
uh, comics that he enjoys because, you know, there are just so many comics out there that uh, I can't read everything. So a lot of the times, uh, you know, just hearing someone else's perspective on comics and getting exposure to it, to what's good, uh, helps me narrow down what to read and what to avoid. Uh, so, you know, that's that's kind of the, the kernel at the foundation of a lot of our comics discussion is just uh, mm-hmm. me and Drew talking about comics and recommending stuff to each other and, you know, just giving... You know, so I don't end up wasting my time with a lot of long Halloweens or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, so when Drew uh, brought this to my attention, I, I didn't know who Peter Milligan was. I had no idea who... Uh, I had I, never read Enigma. Like, so a lot of this was all very foreign to me, but I was, you know, I was intrigued to the point where I was like, yeah, man, I'll, I'll check that out at some point. Like, there's a lot of stuff to read, so, you know... I don't know when I'll get to it, uh, but, you know, seeing as how Drew has just this massive library of comics, it was something where I was like, I'm sure once I get done reading all my stuff, I'll, I'll go through his. And the crazy thing is, eventually, he went to the Green Apple, and one day, he happened to find a copy of Enigma in the discount bin for three bucks, and he was like, dude, I gotta buy this, because it's a $3 trade paperback, so... He bought it, and I remember him um, talking to me about it. And he was he was holding on to this thing like it was, uh, you know, made of solid gold. And somebody walked up to him and was like, "Are you gonna buy that?" And you know, Drew just kind of clutched it to his chest and was like, "I found that out here, and uh, you know, heck yeah, I'm gonna buy it." <laughs> Did that really happen? Uh, I, actually, I think uh, what happened was the guy asked you where you found that, and you were like, "I found it out here for like three bucks." You were like <laughs> pretty proud of that. I, I remember that detail of the story. Oh, you that's know. funny, man. I I, any, I completely forgot about that. Well, but that sounds like a thing you would do. Just any opportunity to like, you know, uh. I mean, at at this point, you could have said that the guy tried to grab it from me and i socked him in the face i probably would have had the same reaction uh, i have no recollection of it but it's something that possibly could have happened i just remember that that being part of the story of how you found it uh because that was something you mentioned to me that's and, funny and you know knowing us we'll we'll take any opportunity to talk about you know the the cheap comics that we find because those are wins man those are, they are man. great big wins those are winning bigly. They're, they're what? Bigly wins. You know, bigly. <laughs> <laughs> what language are you speaking, man? <laughs> uh, <laughs> apparently not English. <laughs> but it, yeah, anyways. Yeah, Drew ended up getting me this, uh, this trade paperback for three or four bucks. I want to say it was three bucks. And, did, you, did you keep uh, the price tag on it? I did, I did. I, I don't have it in front of me because it's a couple of feet away from me on my bookshelf and I don't want to get it up. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, this was like a bunch of years ago. So I've since, I since read it. And if I had to be perfectly honest, it's a book where 
going back to what you said earlier, it's a book that on the surface is it sounds like it's deceptively simple and straightforward because uh, mm-hmm. the plot is pretty pretty straightforward but when you break it down when you like uh deconstruct it and look at all of the various ideas it's it's actually a very complex book uh, and and you're absolutely right in terms of the execution of the book there are just so many details and uh so many details and uh concepts that that are just floating around out there it's a book that requires that you pay a lot of attention to what's going on and that you remember uh or or that you keep track of of various details in order for for the story to make sense you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think um, one of the, in retrospect i think one of the things about enigma that it it can kind of set you up for unmet expectations if you go into it thinking oh, this is some kind of superhero comic or even a superhero deconstruction because even though there's a character, there are multiple characters that are literally uh, superhero characters come to life from comic books, it's not really a superhero book. So I think going into this and expecting a typical superhero type of narrative it's not going to meet those expectations, you know, because that's just not what this is. That might be a reason why my other friend wasn't too impressed by it. Yeah, I I can definitely see that. It's um, well, I mean, how did you sell it to him when when you or not sell? Uh, well, okay, how did you present it to him when you were talking to him about it? Like, did you set him up with the idea that this was, you know, uh, a complex story of uh self-discovery or like like what what exactly did you say i guess i'm I'm kind of curious man it was so long ago I, I really can't remember but if i had to make my best educated guess i'd probably try to sell him on the superhero aspect because that was just the kind of stuff that he was into you know right like right. i thought i thought that really? would be i thought that would huh. be the in you know like that would be right. the way for him to like find his way into it you know because we, we were into all the Marvel and DC stuff at the time, you know, yeah. th- that early 2000s period, we were buying all all the big comics. And, and along with Shane, it's like between the three of us, we probably were reading almost every single superhero book. Yeah. I mean, taking that into consideration, I'd say if you tried to present this to someone as a superhero story, I do think, I mean, I wouldn't say misleading is the word, but it it is, it does. It's like you said, it, it sets them up for, uh, it sets them up for expectations that might not actually be met. Um, Mm -hmm. cause I don't know. I don't even really like reading it now. Uh, recently i i like i don't yeah i don't know if i i'd say the superhero elements are even really the things that drew drew me towards it you mm-hmm. know um like Dun- duncan Fregredo's art is is good i i like it but i don't know if it's uh what i would consider like conventional like superhero art at, at least not the way that it's presented in enigma you know 
there's a there's a quality to it that almost makes it seem more he's a little uh, bit too smart you know that's how yeah I, that's my interpretation of his art like well i was gonna the, say it's more artistic than your regular book and i i don't know if that's you know a little presumptuous or uh pretentious on my part but no i don't i don't think it's pretentious i i really yeah. do think that he put a lot more care into the the overall storytelling of the book than a lot of superhero artists because if you look at enigma yeah. what you're going to find is not very much action instead you'll come across a lot of people having conversations yeah there's a lot yeah. of conversations where people aren't moving or or really doing anything they're kind of just like sitting and or standing around talking to each other because usually that's what happens when you have a conversation with somebody well but, but that's the, the thing way he, like the way he draws all of those conversations is yeah it's, he does it in a way where number one you believe in their body language like his his character acting is excellent the facial mm -hmm. expressions are on point um and just the it's not like he does anything outrageously dynamic in trying to like make any a simple conversation more exciting than it actually is, but he's able to make them all engaging is how yeah. I would describe it. Like his, yeah. whatever angles that he chooses, like whether you're, um, you know, whether the, the angle is looking down on a character or, or, you know, straight on or looking from the side, like it's it's something where you can tell he made a deliberate choice to depict yeah. it like that and and it 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 affects the tone of the story you know like there's I'm I'm looking at a scene where Michael Smith is talking with Titus who was the creator of the comic that Michael liked when he was a kid and it's a scene where uh Titus is is drunk um and they're just talking in in an apartment and you get this there's this one panel where where uh, they're kind of arguing, and the way that the panel is, it's it's more of a, a rectangular, uh, vertically presented panel, but it's at this the the characters are are shot from a, a Dutch angle, so you get this real sense of kind of discombobulation, and you know, like the the emotion from not only the the argument or the conflict that they've had, but also just the fact that one of the characters is drinking himself into a stupor. Mm. So there there's a lot of things like that where if you're if you're just reading it to uh, you know absorb and enjoy the story, you don't really think twice about it, but maybe on a reread or if if, yeah. if you're the kind of person that reads things and and really takes your time, you can look at panels like that and just be appreciative of them, you know, because yeah. I think um another artist, like there's a lot of ways you could do something like that, right? Like you could draw that in a more I guess boring way or you could make it look even more exciting than it actually is. Yeah. Like, I think his way of depicting it in this subtly understated way that it's just perfect for the scene, you know? Like he, he doesn't yeah. have to he doesn't have to spend a whole splash page drawing this guy stumbling around or anything. Yeah. It's not more it's, dramatic than it needs to be. Yeah. I I think you you pretty much hit it on the head cuz um it, you're right. A lot of the book is a lot of uh conversations be between people and that's the th and it's those exchanges that keep the story moving right mm -hmm. but in the hands of another artist you know it's it's the execution of that idea of how 
how do you convey, especially with comics being a visual medium, how do you convey conversations between two people but, but still keep it interesting and keep keep the flow going so that it feels like something is happening, right? So yeah. in the hands of anybody else, you would just see one person in one scene and one person in another scene and then just this back and forth of two people in a room. And that's just not very interesting, you know? It's not interesting yeah. to watch, even if what they have to say is uh progressing the story forward um you know you can't ignore the fact that comics is a medium that includes a visual element to it so yeah it has to there has to be some something there something that's going on that keeps the comic feeling dynamic and keeps it feeling like it's moving and going in addition to what's actually being uh, written, right? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. you, you just yeah. made me think of a good example of what not to do in illustrating scenes like that. Because I was reading I, I, earlier this year, or I guess uh, last year, I was reading through a lot of Bendis comics. I was reading uh, his entire Avengers and New Avengers run, like every single issue i read from the beginning to the end and there were quite a few issues early on that had art by david finch mm. and i remember a lot of scenes and you can see this if you also read the bendis and david finch run on ultimate x-men because i remember he, he would do this too but bendis he's a he's a writer that likes writing a lot of dialogue and his dialogue is fun i, en I enjoy it but when David Finch was drawing his issues, man, like there were a lot of pages where it would be two characters talking to each other and, you know, they would be static. They would be standing in a room uh, or maybe just outside. Yeah. But, like the way that David Finch would draw those scenes. I remember there were at least a couple times when all he would do was would just be like reuse. He would reuse the same panel, you know, like so you get one shot of Luke Cage with his mouth half open talking to captain america and then you know they're just looking at each other and you just see those panels repeated you know like when cap is saying something you see cap in that same position and when luke cage is talking you see luke cage in that same position and then maybe maybe he'll uh, change it up by like zooming in a little bit but you can still tell that it's it's he he either used a copy of his old drawing or mm. he just like traced it over you know and and did it did it again exactly the same so like seeing stuff like that it's um, i just it I'm just, just sounds not lazy that, on man. his part it, it's super lazy it, it doesn't do anything to draw you into the conversation mm. you might as well just be reading a script at that point you know like it yeah that kind of drawing doesn't doesn't really do much to help the story yeah and yet you would see him draw super detailed muscles on characters when they were fighting and, <laughs> and like in these incredible splash pages, you know, like so yeah. you, you obviously could tell what an artist cares about drawing. Yeah. What their but, talent is, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or at least what they're willing to devote the time to. So it's, it's not an easy thing to just be able to draw characters having conversations or just being in realistic situations like yeah. you would think that those would be the kind of things that people should be able to do pretty well but for some reason in yeah. superhero comics at least it's kind of rare i you know what i i do think it takes a degree of imagination to 
envision a scene or a sequence where, okay, we're going to have this conversation happen, but what are we going to look at uh, in order to keep it interesting, right? Um, it almost... I want to say it might even take like a filmmaker's eye or something like that, maybe. But it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of curious or I, I wonder how much of that was like Milligan and how much of that was Fagredo in terms of the uh, staging of the scene, you know? Uh, yeah, that's, that's in, a good point. I wish, I wish the hardcover had some sample scripts or something or excerpts from his scripts. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the extras are are just uh, Figueroa's art uh, in various stages, so I, I I don't know how detailed Milligan's staging instructions were. It that's that's an interesting question though. Yeah, like I like you know Milligan's not a dumb dude. He's he's obviously uh you know pretty imaginative and pretty creative, so. Yeah, it's it's hard to say. Like, it, it it might be a case where it's just the combination of their, uh, you know, similar aesthetics and styles uh, ends mm-hmm. up being just the perfect combination to to put together like you know the perfect scene, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's 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 definitely. It'd be something worth uh, investigating further or checking out just to just to at the very least to satisfy my curiosity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a good question to ask them. Yeah. So, was there anything uh, else you wanted to discuss, or you want to go into the you know just what our what our assessments of this book are according to our four criteria that we've uh, you know, that we've mentioned quite a bit over the course of this series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let's just get into the criteria then. All right. You want, you want to start with uh, the impact? Yeah, sure. Because um, I, I was looking at, at the spreadsheet, and, and I saw that this was definitely one that scored pretty low in terms of impact for you. Yeah. Well, so I, I feel like I've mentioned this quite a few times in terms of... Um, just in this podcast, but like, I don't really have my finger on the pulse of what your average comics person thinks or feels. Um, and I'd probably go so far as to say most of the time, I don't even really care, but, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but you know, uh, of what I do know, um, you know, just from, uh, my peripheral observations of, of fandoms and comics like it's this this book doesn't strike me as something that most people have ever mentioned you know yeah even in terms of impact like if we were talking in terms of impact uh as it as it pertains to uh other comics creators that i like follow and respect like i don't I don't think I've ever heard any any of them really mention it as being something that influenced any of them or any of their works. Um, granted, I don't really like follow other writers like super closely, uh, or or like read essays or anything like that. But it's just not 
a book that I've ever felt was really mentioned a lot in conversation. And and maybe maybe that's something uh, you'd be able to enlighten me on because uh, well I mean you're you're someone who has a pretty strong love for this book as you mentioned earlier in the podcast so mm-hmm. I, I do feel like you're probably looking for uh, things that people have to say about this book certainly more than I am. Yeah, yeah, somewhat. I, I I try to pay a little bit of attention to to what people are saying about the things that I enjoy, I guess. Yeah. But in, yeah, in terms of impact, and when we when we discuss impact, we're, what we're referring to is the kind of lasting influence that the comic had, whether it was just leaving a mark on the DC universe or for DC comics on the industry or even pop culture in general and also is it something that fans remember with affection generally speaking and and i think because of how we've defined impact um you know i I definitely understand that this book is not the most impactful book uh, by those by those metrics because yeah yeah, people don't really talk about enigma for a long time it, it was out of print so it yeah. wasn't even easy to find unless you, you know, really went out of your way to look for the old trade paperback or yeah. or uh, checked out the back issues. And as far as uh, what fans say about it, I feel like I've definitely read like well-written critic reviews about Enigma, but as far as people. In general, you know, whenever you go on like a message board or on Twitter or whatever and and people talk about, even if it's something like best Vertigo comics or something, you know, like you always get like the same ones where people are like, yeah, yeah. Sandman, Preacher, uh, American Vampire or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, and, and then maybe like if you, if you count stuff like Watchmen or, or Swamp Thing, you know, the older books that predated Vertigo but got published under vertigo for so long that people just consider them vertigo mm-hmm. yeah those are the books that you're going to hear mentioned but you you rarely ever hear milligan stuff mentioned alongside gaiman or morrison's stuff you know like you hear yeah, people talk yeah. about morrison's doom patrol and animal man you know gaiman with uh sandman yeah uh, alan moore's swamp thing but people don't talk about shade the changing man or enigma or the extremist like those are books that just got kind of forgotten by time and even even when dc tried to reprint shade the changing man they gave up because people weren't buying it yeah well i mean in context though dc is a bunch of quitters they give up on a lot of books that leave their fans with blue balls so that's true you know shade the changing man certainly isn't uh on its own in terms of uh stuff that never got completed because they're idiots at dc (laughs) yeah Um, that's fair uh yeah in terms of leaving an impact or a mark elsewhere uh, beyond the fans it it's hard to say that it really did anything for dc um i mean i i don't think it really made too much of a dent there i mean i will say that it was one of the first vertigo books if so that that counts for something but yeah uh you know originally it wasn't necessarily gonna be a vertigo comic 
it was going to be a, a Disney comic. Yeah, what's yeah. up? Well, I'm kind of curious. So the way that you framed this uh, statement where, you know, in terms of the way that we view impact, it, it doesn't necessarily meet those metrics. But I'm kind of curious to see, like, is there some impact or some form of impact that you think it la- it left, uh, you know, that isn't necessarily defined the way that we we defined it? Does that make sense? So you're asking me to redefine impact? Or, well, not necessarily redefine it, but uh, I guess in if there was some sort of... Well, I mean, it obviously left a personal impact on you, like mm-hmm. in, in, in just how like powerful the book is, but uh, is there another... Like form of impact that it left or like i i guess i'm saying is there something that we're missing in our description of impact that we're not including here um you know something you know some qualitative uh element that we're not that we're not seeing (laughs) um i don't know if there's any qualitative element that that we neglected but uh i i do think that the kind of impact this book has among just influencing other creators that that's a little bit more abstract you know because unless it's harder to pin down yeah you really you would really have to take a survey of professionals and be like has this book you know like what were your thoughts on this book did it influence you or impact you in any way Mm-hmm. And and that's not really something that'll ever come up. Yeah, I do know that pros respect it and appreciate it. I mean, like Grant Morrison was definitely one of the first or one of the early people to to champion this book. Like he, yeah, he really praised it in the trade paperback edition. He wrote the introduction, and uh, you know, he wrote a lot of of kind things about the book. Um, I think he's even said that it's got one of the best endings or at least one of the strangest endings that he's ever read in a comic. And he meant that from in Grant a Morrison. complimentary way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's from Grant Morrison. And anytime you can out Morrison, Morrison. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing well, man. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I know Kieran Gillen has said some great things about it too. And in fact, he has a, a pull quote on the back of the hardcover. And uh, he says, Beautiful, literary, decades ahead of its time. This is the greatest adult superhero comic of the 90s, at least. Oh, nice, nice. So, yeah, he's he's another... He's, he's writer that I prominent respect. now. Uh, yeah, certainly. yeah. Uh, and and he's he's younger, too, so he this was probably something that, uh, you know, he read when he was a young man, and yeah. uh, I guess, you know, he, he still remembered it after all these years, enough to say something about it for the reprinting yeah it it sort of makes me think about you know like if we think about it in terms of music like there's you know people know the beatles or people know like a lot of the greats or whatever and but we don't i'm sure there are a whole bunch of contemporaries that never never quite made it 
as big, but you know, they they left something uh they left something in the culture of music that a lot of people are gonna forget or or not a lot of people are gonna forget, but people aren't necessarily going to attribute to them, you know? Yeah. Um since you brought up the Beatles, Albert, have you ever heard of the Kinks? I have heard of them. I can't say that I've listened to their music, but I'm uh, peripherally aware of them. Yeah, so they were another uh, British invasion band around the same era, but they never got super big in America the way that yeah. the Beatles and the Rolling Stones did. Yeah. And yet, uh, you know, for whatever reason, man, my my dad was a fan of British invasion music, so. I was exposed to stuff like the Kinks as a kid, and I, I really like them, man. But I don't really know anybody. Yeah, um, they're our not age someone that yeah who, who likes them too. You know, they're not. It's like if they are in the history books, they're probably like deep in the in the index or something, you know, or a footnote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I you mean, know? if you're writing a book about the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. You're probably not even gonna like the the Kinks might be a a footnote. Yeah. And yeah. um, and yet I think if for people that really uh study that era of music, specifically that that British invasion era of the '60s. Yeah. There's no way that you can ignore the Kinks. You know, the same way where if you study the British invasion of comics in the yeah. late '80s and '90s, there's yeah. no way you can ignore Peter Milligan. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like. But it's just that the popular culture doesn't really remember them as fondly as, you know, the bigger names, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't remember Milligan as well as they remember Morrison or Alan yeah. Moore or Neil Gaiman or yeah. even someone like Garth Ennis, um, you know, and with, with the Kinks. Yeah. They're always going to be overshadowed by the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and the Who. Yeah. So. Well. I, like you know while we're on the subject like i'd even say that like a more or or an apt com another apt comparison would be like you know now that comics are kind of a big thing you know if you mentioned stan lee everybody knows stan lee but you know try to mention to your average uh mcu fan someone like grant morrison <laughs> like <laughs> that yeah. i'm pretty sure that's that'd be lost on them you know yeah yeah but that's yeah uh like to to which uh to what you were saying earlier uh on on impact like it's it was even a surprise to me that this version of the book was eventually made uh you mentioned earlier that this book was out of print for a really long time and when the news came out that they were doing this deluxe hardcover like I was pretty surprised by that because yeah. I it was not something that I had expected. I didn't know anyone that was except for Drew, you know, who was like <laughs> at, who was asking for something like this. The Peter Milligan so, fanboy. Yeah, like it was. So when they announced it, I was just like, "Oh, wow, that's uh, that's unexpected," <laughs> you know. Yeah, me too. I was shocked, man. Yeah, I, like I, I guess that does. I mean, part of me wants to say that that says something to like its lasting power. Maybe, maybe there are more people that 
have fondness and affection Clearly for this Clearly people book. that know stuff about comics really appreciate it because Karen Berger, she knows a lot of stuff about comics. Yeah. And yeah, you could say that she has a personal stake because of the Vertigo history, but yeah. But um, I think she she's somebody that, that you can really respect as in terms of uh, being a tastemaker in comics. And yeah. if, if she thinks that this book is worthy of this treatment, then it absolutely is, you know? Like, it's it's something that deserves a definitive edition something that yeah is worthy of being brought back into availability yeah. you know yeah it's something that should be kept alive as opposed to something exactly. that's forgotten to exactly. to the ocean of time um and I, I would say that another uh unforeseen um like circumstance of this book coming out as a deluxe edition is um so although i had the trade paperback copy of the book that drew bought me uh, all those years ago uh i did end up borrowing this from uh hoopla for off the off their digital library and uh you know in case i was reading i was in a place where i didn't have the book available i could read it off my phone or off my tablet or something right mm-hmm. but uh because this book is re-released in this deluxe hardcover format, now it's on the library, or it's at, it's at the library in the digital format. So it's like super accessible now, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whereas the original version of the book, I don't think that was something that the library would have still had because if they did have it, it was probably destroyed by now because people <laughs> don't know how to take care of books. Yeah. And, I I kind of doubt that the that they would have had a digital version of the original paperback uh, in in available, you know. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. So, you know, truly for a those, beautiful thing for this book to come back into yeah, print and hardcover. It's a second life, man. It's a second life, for reals. You know. So you know, if you guys want to check it out. You know, if you're in San Francisco, go check out Hoopla. Uh, if if not, you know, it's, you know, heck, go to Comixology, and I'm pretty sure it's on there, too, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or just buy the hardcover. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure most modern libraries have some kind of uh, electronic library connection, like our library does. So, yeah. Yeah. It's an easy way to to check out books, especially during the pandemic, because I was reading in the news that a lot of libraries that previously didn't have something like Hoopla or, you know, Overdrive or, you know, whatever the e-reader equivalent to a library was, like a lot of libraries ended up signing up for services like that because of the pandemic. Yeah. And I've definitely been getting my money's worth out of uh, the digital library here. It's it's. Heck, I've been getting my money's worth out of my tablet, man. I've just been reading that like mad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one thing about Enigma, I don't, this might not really be a big deal in terms of impact, but I was thinking just about how, at least for for me, it, it was something that kind of functioned as a gateway comic between mainstream comics and quote-unquote literary comics. You know, mm-hmm. like, yeah. I think because it was a DC book, technically, uh, and also because it had a superhero, you know, in the most literal sense, it, it felt like it wasn't so far off 
from the kind of thing that I was reading at the time. Uh-huh. So it, it, it didn't feel too alien, you know? Like, I felt like I could give it a try because it had... You could convince yourself that this was a... <laughs> This mm-hmm. was a cape comic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. But then one, once once I read it, it was like, oh, this is like an actual novel, you know? Like this is like, I don't know, like a like a real postmodern book. Yeah. Because because yeah. I was uh you know in college I was I was a, a literature major and had to read a, a ton of different novels and 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 this definitely felt more along the lines of one of those novels for you know so a postmodern class then then it felt uh it had more in common with something like that than with something like spider-man uh-huh, uh-huh. so i i think it it did inspire me to just be more aware of comics beyond just your superhero comics you know because it yeah it was only a little while after this that i started to seek out a whole bunch of other types of comics yeah i feel yeah. like i feel like people kind of maybe it's different now but about 20 years ago i felt like comics was kind of divided into a couple of major subsections so you had the people that would read superhero comics which was pretty much just marvel and dc and then there were people that were into like alternative comics or indie comics which yeah. at the time that was pretty much you know fantagraphics pantheon the uh, ad house alternative comics drawn in quarterly you know like those, those really artsy fartsy you know yeah. highbrow kind of literature yeah. Yeah, graphic yeah. novels you know yeah so so like looking at something like people who read those comics wouldn't really think twice about looking at a dc comic and yet, yet for me, this was a comic that uh, just expanded my horizons in terms of like what the medium could be and and what kinds of stories I could find if I just you know looked for them. And I I did go on deep dives with you know top shelf comics and drawn in quarterly and fantagraphics and stuff like that. So it 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 definitely opened my eyes and and made me. It excited me, man. It kind of lit a fire under me to to look for more new experiences, you know. Like that's yeah, that's what it was really about. It was just it was just about uh, collecting new experiences, you know, and and being able to speculate on ideas. Like that was the whole draw of Vertigo, and and maybe you couldn't do that if you were just reading, you know, Batman or something, but you could find it in a uh, in indie books, and th- those were the kind of things that that uh you know were naturally the next step yeah yeah i i could definitely see that it's when you described it as a gateway book i i think there's a lot of truth to that and you know just the fact that that's how you tried to introduce it to your friend uh you know as something that again has superheroes in it but really is something that eases uh eases your way into uh l- like you said literary comics something that just explores ideas deeper than could batman punch through a dude's face <laughs> <laughs> wait can he though 
uh, I bet you could write a story, or I bet anyone could write a story where that happens. <laughs> I- I'm pretty sure in the next Batman movie that's coming out, uh, he's going to, at some point, do something close to punching his fist through a dude's face. That's true. He's bulletproof. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <clears throat> no, I saw that in the trailer, man. People were firing their guns at him from almost point blank range, and he was just walking towards them, shrugging right, off the gunfire. Right. I forgot about that. He was, yeah. he's just, uh, what's it called? He was just kind of uh, shrugging, shrugging the bullet fire off because he Batman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody, nobody thought to aim at his jaw. <laughs> uh, Superman's got kryptonite and Batman has his jaw. <laughs> yeah, his glass jaw. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think uh, you know, now that we've kind of opened the door for it, we can talk about the originality of the book a little bit um mm-hmm. as one of our other criteria. Uh how's that sound? Yeah, yeah. I think the first thing that comes to mind is, man, there isn't really anything else much out there like this in comics. Yeah. Like I, I was trying to think about similar comics and maybe things that I would recommend if somebody liked this. And it was, it was hard to think of things that are similar, you know? And maybe there is, and there probably is something that would be like a no-brainer. But just in the moment, I, I couldn't think of it, you know? Maybe... Maybe somebody out there listening would be like, hey, what about this comic or that comic? And I'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. you know, I forgot about that. But um, it, it really feels like a unique piece of work, you know? It, yeah. There isn't a whole lot that I can think of that has a similar tone or a similar style. I, I think at best, I would say that there are other things that explore some of the same ideas and there are some other things that are also uh surreal and occasionally absurdist in in a way that's kind of similar to enigma but this this book is just to me it's it's pretty unique and clever yeah i think it's fair to say that milligan's got a pretty unique voice uh just overall in the in the comic sphere you know Mm-hmm. Um, like if I had to say, if I had to be perfectly honest, I do think that this is a book that's way smarter than I am. Uh, I I I don't remember what the circumstances for my reading of it the first time were. Uh, knowing me, uh, I think I read it when I was uh at the gym, so <laughs> so if you guys can imagine Albert lifting a dumbbell and with one arm while reading a comic <laughs> with the other arm. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> well, so the thing is I spend a, uh, in order to maximize, uh, my time, there was a period of time where I, I had to look for, or I had to, uh, what's, what's the word? I had to, uh, uh, cultivate or not cultivate. I had to, artificially create circumstances for myself that would force me to to read 
So, you know, like taking the bus on purpose, for example, uh, would be it, it would force me to sit there for like 30 minutes to an hour so that because I had nothing else to do, I would read, you know, because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, you know, just there's just a lot going on. So I would go to the gym and I would bring a book with me. And, uh, you know, while I was running on the treadmill, I would read the book or in between sets, I would like read like a page and comics were perfect for that. You know, like you, you do a set of weights and then you read a couple like two pages and, uh, you know, assuming that it's not anything too dense, it's the perfect amount of time for a break, but before you do your next set. Okay. So I think admittedly that that was not the best way to read the book because (laughs) there's just so much going on that you end up missing a lot of the details. And uh, this time around, I was reading it from the comfort of my own home. Um, I did end up reading a couple of issues, a couple of the issues while I was on the treadmill at, uh, at the gym. Uh, but for the most part, I was reading most of it just uh, on my couch. So I, I do think I picked up more this time around than I did in my previous read through and yeah there's uh, again even though it in in our description of the plot it sounds like it isn't anything too special it's it, its originality really is in the the postmodernist sensibilities of this book and yeah. it's it's I'd even say that the the more conventional uh, elements of the book are just are just dressing at most for the really just crazy like out there ideas that uh, Milligan plays around with, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, this this would be a really difficult book to to make sense of if you're reading it with kind of this, you know, herky jerky or stopping and starting kind of pattern where like you'd, you'd read for like two minutes and then put it down and, and then, uh, you know, read again, like a few minutes later. Yeah. It, it's something where I think to get the most out of it, it, it probably does demand your attention. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the funny thing is I, even this time around, it wasn't like I read it in one sitting. I read it over the course of several days, and even taking those breaks in between, I did catch myself having to go back to previous issues just to reacquaint myself or readjust myself to what was going on in the story, because things would happen, and I'd realize, oh, wait, where was the last time I saw those characters? What were they doing? How did they just like get here to this point, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, th- I mean, there's some elements, or there are some moments where you have the occasional like time skip in the comic, mm-hmm. but it's not like it jumps around a lot to the point where it makes it super confusing or anything like that. But there's just so many moving parts to this story, so many like things are going on that. Uh, if you lose track of one thing, it does throw you off, throw me off anyways. I I, I don't know if, if you feel the same way, Drew. Mm, I guess 
this time around when I was reading it, I I didn't really. Maybe it's because I've read it a few times already, so it, it didn't feel like there was anything that uh, seemed a little in, impenetrable. I felt like I was able to follow the plot pretty well. I think where it really demands attention is is just the fact that it causes you to ponder themes and ideas, you know, specifically yeah. uh, the themes of identity and sexuality, which are two of Milligan's recurring themes that you see crop up in his work time and time again. Um, but I, I think because because of that, it is a dense comic, but it's dense because of its ideas. It's not yeah. dense because there are a lot of words or because the plot is confusing. I think it's dense because there's just so much thought and thematic content packed into it that if you every time you reread it, you can like I was saying earlier, you can appreciate new aspects of it, you know, maybe appreciate the same aspect from a different angle even. Mm-hmm. And it's it's well constructed enough where the you can clearly follow the thematic trajectory if you're paying attention to it, especially especially if you're rereading it, I think, mm. because because I wasn't this time around I wasn't really paying super close attention to the to the plot. I was really just reading to to enjoy it again, you know? Yeah. To enjoy and absorb the the writing because there's some pretty hilarious prose in this comic. Like some of Milligan's writing is it's just funny, man. And I think when we did our episode on um on endings in comics, I talked about how the ending to this comic was one of my favorite endings and i'm I'm still not gonna spoil it i'm not gonna spoil the last page of this because it's, it's just that good but uh there are just a lot of different panels throughout the comic that just have funny they just make me laugh they're just amusing the the there's a a third person omniscient narrator uh throughout the book and it's a narrator that ridicules the protagonist and the other characters in the story so it, it's there's just something amusing about it and, and and i think that's one of the the elements of it that really that really uh highlight this work as a postmodern comic book to me because it does have that sort of unreliable narrator where you, you don't know if you can trust what he's saying because like his observations about the characters are are still colored by his own personal biases or interpretations you know and yeah. it's not necessarily um, speaking the truth about the comic or about the characters. And on top of that, you know, one of the recurring elements of postmodern works is that there really is no absolute truth and truth is subjective. So um, that's, a, that's a topic that gets explored in pretty, ga- pretty, pretty great depth in this comic. I mean, one of the, one of the characters that uh, they end up fighting is called the truth. You know, yeah, so it's like yeah. this this metaphor that is just brought into literal fruition where they're they're battling a crazy guy, but it's also um you know they're literally fighting against the truth. You know, how how yeah. much more on the nose can you get yeah. when you're when you're talking about a postmodern work? 
Also, yeah. I want to say that the idea for that character, the truth, he's a in the comic, he's a supervillain. And his power is that he makes his victims see the truth about their lives until they die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty hilarious. That, that is a creative concept. Yeah, it disintegrates them or something. Like, it's just, yeah, the truth becomes so Heroine. staggering to them that they just dissolve <laughs> yeah <laughs> he just makes them see the truth that but see that's a funny concept man that is a really hilarious original idea for a supervillain yeah all of the supervillains are pretty 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 out there uh in this in in in, in enigma mm-hmm. uh you have the truth you have the head uh What's it called? The Envelope? Or... Is it Envelope Girl? I forget. Envelope Girl, yeah. And, uh... One of my favorites is these group of villains called the yeah. Interior League. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, the Interior League are these supervillains. They're so dastardly. What they do is they go into people's houses, rearrange their furniture, but they rearrange the furniture in a way that drives one person of the household mad, so that person ends up murdering everybody else and committing suicide. <laughs> See? That is super original. That's just such a far out idea, but I like I just I, I think if you described it some to someone, they'd just be like, How does that make any sense? But at the same time it does it you know, these it's comics, it kinda doesn't need to make any sense, right? I mean it, it that's all the sense it needs to make. Yeah, exactly. There we go. <laughs> that's all the sense it needs to make, you know? Like you just need to believe that that's just how their powers work uh, exactly in, in this particular story and that's that's part of the absurdity and the the creativity and the fun of of this particular story right mhm mhm <laughs> yeah yeah it it really works even just from an entertainment perspective like i i feel like I uplift it because I find it like a literary comic, but really just in terms of entertainment, I'm I'm highly entertained by it just on a base level. Yeah. Yeah. So I like, so I guess I'm not really sure where we would talk about it, but uh, you did mention earlier that, um, you know, one of the things that he explores in the comic is the ideas of uh sexuality right yeah and uh i i guess that'd be a good you know transition to discuss like some of the themes that that are going on within the story like some of the like what 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 are the bigger ideas that he explores exactly Mhm. Mhm. yeah i'd say the two biggest ideas would be identity and sexuality. Yeah. Like so much of the story is around Michael's journey to figure out who he is. Yeah. And that's, it ends up that that's tied very closely to his, his own sexuality, specifically his, yeah. his uh, uh, burgeoning or awakening to, to realize that he is homosexual. Yeah. So it, it's something that is Definitely an idea that isn't necessarily unique, but but I think in terms of 
comics, especially when you when you look at other mainstream comics circa 1993, mm-hmm. like I don't I don't really know what else out there from Marvel or DC would be anything remotely comparable to this, you know? Uh, they made North Star gay. <laughs> uh, don't think that counts. <laughs> that was <laughs> I got you. Yeah, I got you. I mean it, it's that's one of those things where it feels more like it could have been a stunt rather like that. Like this feels more like a story, is what I'm saying, you know? Huh? What's that? It wasn't so much an exploration of his sexuality as much as it was, hey, guys, guess what? He's a gay. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I I, I think that's what it feels more like. And and I think that's why, uh, like, looking back at at that era with North Star, that, that, that feels... It it feels kind of cringy, you know. Like it. Yeah. It doesn't feel. I mean, I'm sure that the people. Well, actually, I shouldn't say I'm sure, but I, there's a chance that the people who made the comic, or who came up with the idea, or you know, made the decision to make him gay, had good intentions. But the execution wasn't anything that really lasted, and I think the only reason we talk about it now is because. It was the first Marvel character to be openly gay, right? Like yeah, I, I think that's yeah. the only reason. Yeah. But in in terms of like a story, like I don't think anybody says, "Oh yeah, that was a really powerful story that, yeah, uh, you know, affected me or or you know, made me think." Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Like to go back to what you were saying, um, I. Like, I feel like so much of Enigma, like, although a lot of time is spent on the mystery of, you know, finding out what's causing these supervillains to show up in the real world, I I do think it's just kind of a disguised for the actual story, which is Michael Smith uh, slowly coming to terms with what his uh, sexual orientation is, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, because even at the beginning of the story, uh, it it starts out with him just being this really mundane kind of guy. He's 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 really unassuming, kind of boring. Um, it's this milk toast guy who yeah, exactly. Lives in he's a super... routine with his he has a routine with his girlfriend, and she's cheating on him, and he doesn't even really know. Yeah, but you even get the sense that even if he did know he wouldn't really care. Yeah, <laughs> or know? he wouldn't do anything about it. Yeah, exactly. They just, they're really just living a paint by numbers kind of life, you know? Mm-hmm. And then this event with this superhero or with Enigma and these villains, it, it jumpstarts something in his mind and in his life. And although on the, on this, on the face of it, it looks like, the story is going to be about this mystery. Uh, the kind of the the revelation is uh, is basically that uh, while he's going on this trip, 
he's introducing himself to people that are triggering these uh, feelings and ideas in him, you know? Mm-hmm. And and it, it's such a... It, it's really kind of heavy because at, at one point, like when he finally embraces uh, or, yeah, embraces the idea that he might be, uh, or that he is a homosexual. Like, it, it comes out in this pretty interesting way in in the form of, like, it, it comes out in the form of him being in love, or I don't even know if love is the word, but uh, him, well, okay, I'll just say being in love with the Enigma, right? Mm-hmm. This character mm-hmm. that he grew up uh you know this character this comic book character that he grew up uh being like enjoying as a kid right yeah, yeah fan of and it and for it to take that shape as an adult it's really it's really interesting to to see how that plays out you know like it's yeah the idea of him uh liking this character as a kid only to grow up and still have these feelings and not be able to articulate them. And then just to have it all culminate in this moment of passion with the character, this fictional character that he's always been in love with. And that has, I guess it's safe to say has been this, uh, vessel for his unrequited love or, uh, homosexual feelings you know mm-hmm. it's yeah it's it's uh again it's a very deceptively simple book but there's like so many complexities to it all you know yeah and as you were describing that you did make me think of something that uh i i don't have a an answer for this question but i, I wanted to see what what you think but but uh do you think there's any chance that you could read this as perhaps some kind of commentary or subtext on comic book fans or superhero fans in general? Like, is it making a uh-huh. statement about superhero fans who, who just grew up super obsessed reading the, you know, superhero comics? Um, and, you know, as they grow up, maybe if, I don't know, is, is there... Is it saying something about it or, you know, that, that's you know, just with, a thought that crossed my mind. Yeah. It wasn't something I thought about until now. Yeah. You know what the funny thing is? I think that thought even crossed my mind briefly while I, as I was reading it this time around. Like, I don't remember the the specific scene that I was looking at that made me jump to that thought for a brief uh, instance. But... I don't know. I, that does make me wonder if this is a thing where, like, Peter Milgan might have been ahead of his time in terms of just how he observed comic book fandoms, or if this was a thing where, in the context of 2022, as someone who has read comics for as long as I have and who's just seen how the fandom has evolved over time. Mm-hmm. And assigning meaning to that based on what I've read, what I've read in Enigma, um, 
Yeah, that's another one of those questions where, like, if I had a chance to ask Peter Milligan about it, I'd I'd be curious to see. Uh, like, I I don't think, or or rather, I do think Peter Milligan would be the kind of writer who, like, I don't think he necessarily has bad things to say about the fandom or anything like that, but. I do but think I, I think he's capable of the irony, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like definitely the irony. Yeah, exactly. Like he understands the fandom enough, and I guess being a creator of comics, there's there's a love hate relationship there, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even even if it's not done in a playfully mocking manner i was wondering i'm trying to think is is there a way to read into this text and and uh you know come come to an interpretation where it's saying something like um the fact that michael smith finally discovers who he is (laughs) yeah is it comes at that point after he grows out of the enigma or it it, it it doesn't come until after he he moves on past his uh you know his childish things and he he comes to to recognize that the enigma is an individual person as well you know like not just a figment of his imagination but but uh a real person operating in the real world yeah and, yeah, and yeah. he learns he learns the enigma's uh history and and you know like as he as he discovers basically it's like moving on from reading a comic book to discovering yeah. real life you know and it's it's almost like saying or maybe i guess this is the interpretation that i'm i'm trying to still i'm still working it out as i'm as i'm talking to you right now yeah. but it's like he's it isn't until he's um you know growing up and moving on from his comics and and trying to like really involve himself in in reality that he's uh-huh, able uh-huh. to finally self-actualize and and discover who he is you know yeah and yeah. and maybe with with uh comic book fanboys you know people get so caught up in in like the same old crap that they've been reading since they were kids yeah they don't they don't really uh experience that that growth you know right right well i'm listening to you right now and like I think you've struck on something, cause yeah, it, it's you're right. When his moment of realization comes when he when he talks to Enigma and he realizes that the Enigma isn't just a projection of his imagination manifested in the real world, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the the Enigma is an actual person who exist outside of himself and you mentioned uh self-actualization right mm-hmm. so it's it's that moment where michael realizes that he's not the center of the world and there are other things outside of himself that's that's the moment where he's truly able to embrace uh this growth mindset right yeah and and yeah it's kind of funny <laughs> putting that uh <laughs> comparing that to the idea of a fanboy <laughs> who who is essentially 
incapable of that uh, of that <laughs> level of self-actualization or realization, right? Because they're so focused on just maintaining uh, a consistency in order for them to enjoy what they enjoy, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I, I have to admit that maybe my interpretation is colored by my the fact that I disdain fanboys. So, yeah. you know, like, if I were a fair-minded person, would I still come to that conclusion? I don't know. I'm biased. Yeah, yeah. It's... It's an interesting thought. Uh, I have to admit that it's it's a thought that I hope is true because <laughs> I, I'll take anything to believe or to reinforce the notion that these people are incapable of growth and <laughs> and maybe that's the problem. <laughs> Stay fresh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah but if if we could ask peter milligan someday that would be that would be an interesting conversation topic to have for sure yeah yeah and i I think that's why this book is such an original piece of work because there are so many ideas to mine within it that even you know, we're we're decades away from its original publication, and um, you know, we're we're still finding new angles to to look at. You know, we've we've read it multiple times, and we're yeah. still finding things to dig into and and really sink our teeth into. Just the fact that it's it's got that hold over us. It, it's yeah, yeah. There's there aren't like it. You definitely got to respect the comics that have that ability you know and um the other thing i was gonna say is as a postmodern comic it's one of those comics i think um does the self-referential kind of thing pretty well like it like some comics that that uh rely on self-references get pretty uh it can be pretty corny or uncreative like i think of how people you know how people like Deadpool because they say he breaks the fourth wall and stuff? Yeah. Like that that's yeah. a pretty lazy way of being self-referential, I think, and and being metatextual. I th- I think the way that Enigma does it is is just about pitch perfect because it's it's done a lot more subtly. It's it doesn't beat you over the head with it. You don't have uh you know, you don't have Deadpool looking straight at the camera saying, "Hey guys, I'm in a comic book." <laughs> yeah. You know? It, yeah. But but the fact that it's got these comic book references that I I think make more sense and will resonate more if you're already a superhero reader. Like I f- I find that pretty interesting. Like that's like Peter Milligan and Duncan Figueredo could have told a story about identity and sexuality without integrating any kind of superheroes in the story at all but they chose yeah. to to do superhero comic books yeah yeah i mean it comes from a place of love of the medium right yeah so it's like yeah it's like you said like there's a myriad of ways that they could have told that story they could have done it as a play or as a film or as a prose a novel or something like that right but yeah and it and it didn't have to have it wouldn't have had to have superheroes in it but they yeah. chose to have superheroes yeah 
and and they chose to have comic books i mean yeah there's there are scenes in here where where michael smith is holding a comic book you know and you get little flashbacks of him as a kid reading enigma comics yeah no absolutely so much of of this uh series like i don't i don't know if it's a love letter to comics or anything like that but it it doesn't it doesn't shy away from the fact that it is a comic book and the 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 fact that this is what the the medium is right like it mm-hmm. it acknowledges it for what it is and it appreciates it you know yeah 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 and i, I think that's yeah that that's the intertextuality right like the fact that so much of the the resonance and the, the understanding of the story kind of kind of expects the reader to be somewhat familiar with comic books in general right like i i do wonder like how would this experience be if this were the first comic book that somebody ever read but i think for most of us most people who pick it up will already have read other comics so you you go into it with um this understanding of comics how comics work and and uh you know just the familiarity will kind of influence your your interpretation and understanding of the text but you have with with enigma um you know there there are things that you take from outside the text into your reading experience and that colors how you understand what enigma means yeah which which is pretty fascinating yeah yeah like one one good example is uh the story that peter milligan tells and he he writes about it in his introduction in the hardcover so like here's this this was a funny thing because i i had never known this until i read his introduction but in the original uh, trade paperback edition, there was that uh, it had an introduction written by Grant Morrison, um, and then I think even if you have the original issues, if you look in the letters columns of some of the later issues, they mentioned this too. But essentially, it was it was commonly accepted that uh, the artwork in Enigma purposefully evolves over the course of the eight issues like when you look at the first issue or just you know the first couple issues duncan figredo's style in in those issues is very scratchy like there's a lot of a lot of lines uh it's it probably looks reminiscent of uh like bill sinkevich or kent williams and Mm, mm. the way that they would draw with uh, a lot of just a lot of lines in general yeah um, and they they weren't like perfectly clean lines like the characters weren't perfectly clean but as you progress through the story the later issues have line work that's a lot more solid the the there aren't as many extraneous lines everything's a lot more uh firmly defined with and yeah. bolder yeah and you just see this progression of art and the way that they had presented that in the past was uh, Milligan and Figredo and the editor, I think it was Art Young in the letters column, 
can't remember if he was the one who was answering the letters, but uh, they basically pointed out that the reason why the art style evolves over these eight issues is because it reflects Michael Smith's journey into his self-actualization. So it's like he starts off as this kind of like milk toast or, you know, milk toast kind of guy, or even in some ways, like a generic cipher. So there's not like a whole lot of definition to him. And that's why you have all these extra lines. But as he grows closer and closer into the person that he finally becomes, you know, he gains that confidence. He learns more about himself and that's when the lines get tightened up and the character becomes more defined from a Mm -hmm. visual standpoint. Yeah. So like the creative team was, was saying that, you know, that, that was an intentional choice to, for Duncan Figueroa's art to reflect the hero's journey or the protagonist's journey um, throughout the story so I always thought that was pretty clever, you know, like that, that is, that is artistic, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, wow, they, they really thought that What an attention because, to detail. Yeah, yeah, really yeah. incredible. But the funny <laughs> thing is, if, if you read the introduction to the hardcover, Peter Milligan says that was all a lie. <laughs> like, yeah. Like basically what happened was Duncan Figredo had just, this is one of his earliest comics because he had done Kid Eternity, another Vertigo book with Grant Morrison, but he painted that. So it it was different style and he was getting used to doing a more traditional comic where somebody else was coloring his work. And he, that that's the reason why the line work in the early issues looks a lot rougher compared to the, to the bolder look in the later issues. But apparently, uh, you know, this being the nineties, they went on a the creative team went on a, a tour through comic shops across America. Um, you know, it was the Vertigo tour, and somebody asked Milligan the question about the art, or just you know pointed out that hey, how come the art kind of evolves over the issues? And and Milligan on the spot he came up with that answer. He said, <laughs> yeah, it's because the art is meant to reflect the growth and maturity of the character. You know, and everybody was like. Whoa, that's a, a, that's really clever. Genius. Yes, genius. <laughs> but but Milligan straight up admits here that he just made it up on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then uh, later on, um, at the end of the hardcover, Duncan Figueroa writes a little afterward piece, and he he mentions that story too, and and he says that that wasn't intended at all. It was just that. He just got better as an artist as the months <laughs> went on. And it was as simple as that. Yeah. It's a funny anecdote. It's hilarious. Yeah. But I was uh I was watching this video earlier this week on uh cause cause comics experience, the comic one of the comic book stores here in San Francisco, they have this graphic novel month of the uh, graphic novel of the month club that they do and and in december of 2021 enigma was that graphic novel so what they do is they actually have like a a zoom call interview with the creators of the comic and it's on youtube if if anybody out there wants to look it up just go look up comics spelled with an x comics experience and uh 
they did an interview with Brian Hibbs, the owner of the shop, did an interview with Milligan and Figueiredo, and they they told this story uh, on that interview, and yeah, they 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 were laughing, and you know, it, it was a funny thing. It's it's just uh, Duncan Figueiredo was saying how he kept when they were on that tour, he kept telling everybody. I think he said two or three issues had come out, and he was telling everybody. Um, I'm sorry about the art. You know, don't worry. It gets better. It gets better. So like, <laughs> even at the time, he was like, he felt self-conscious about his his art. And, yeah. you know, from his perspective, it was just, he was getting better as an artist as the issues yeah. progressed. But uh, once Milligan told that story, he he was telling other people that story when people were asking him, in the, you know, later on. So it just kind of took hold. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, just, it's amazing how a story like that really did shape my perspective on enigma for pretty much until i read the hardcover this week yeah yeah i mean it just feels like it's it's the book that keeps on giving where even even if you're reading it uh you know multiple times every time you read it there's something about it that you discover something new right Mm -hmm. and you know that anecdote is just the perfect example of how it continues to grow as a piece of work, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it continues to grow. It just took hold, and and for a long time, I was taking that information into the text as I would read it. You know, like that's how that that false story. You know, like that Milligan's false story was something that affected how I understood and interpreted the art you know yeah yeah so there, there's something funny about that especially because it it really revolved around this theme of being enigmatic and being truthful yeah it's uh it's it's interesting to think though like it it I, i'm not gonna say that it shakes my faith in them uh, as as creators but a lot of the times when we read comics, we assign a lot of um, creativity to the creators uh, because, you know, there's there's just a lot of ideas or details that we pick up where in our reading of it, they just seem so profound to us, right? Yeah. And especially Milligan and Figredo, um, you know, them being the talents that they are, uh, just in the way that they executed the story, uh, the, the, the details that they did put in, the intentional details, are just so well-crafted and so well-thought-out uh, over the course of the eight issues where it's like, oh, man, they thought of everything for this book uh, when they were yeah. writing it. So... Of course, they would have put that much effort into into adding that additional detail to the book, where the art gets, where the art changes over time as he has his internal personal change. Yeah, his personal revelation and internal change, mm-hmm. right? Like, of course, it would because that's that's just the level that they were operating at, the level that they were functioning at, right? Yeah, and. For them to like flip the switch on that by revealing that, oh yeah, that was just a thing that happened, and we we just thought we'd give it a cool answer 
when Milligan made it up and it. you just decided yeah. to run with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounded good. It's, yeah, it's it, it does make me rethink some of the things. I mean, like, I still think they're um, you know, both incredibly talented and smart writer uh smart uh writers and artists but it it does have the effect of bringing me down to earth where sometimes when uh you know when you're a fan of something and you gush over it and you're really into it sometimes you you get into this headspace where it's like wow they they thought of so much they 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 thought of so many things for this but some things are just happy coincidences sometimes, you know? Yeah. But yeah. would you – do you feel better knowing the truth or would you prefer to have continued living the lie, Albert? Oh, I'm, I, I'm, I want to know the truth. I, I would prefer to know the truth because I, I don't want to go, go out there and tell this story only to find out that it was all a lie. You know, mm-hmm. then I feel stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? I, I guess that's just a testament to the uh, the evolving nature of stories, because now in our telling of 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 this story, there's this extra layer added to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And. That extra layer just adds to the enjoyment of the work as a whole, because. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's enjoyable to to have works that we can actually have things to talk about, you know. Exactly. Exactly. Like it, it it it's I appreciate it more, you know, compared to having something where you read it once and there really isn't much to say about it because it's just so bland. Yeah, I mean, just look at just now, like over the course of this podcast, we just spent a couple of extra minutes just discussing that detail of it and just how much it added to the overall experience of this mm-hmm. work right yeah it's, it's the i guess the the meta textual or the meta uh yeah the meta textual uh contribution of that story that just keeps adding to the overall snowball of everything that i appreciate about it yeah totally man yeah you want to talk a little bit about the craft of the story yeah i think we uh i mean we've we've talked about it quite a bit uh in the other as we discussed it in the other uh criteria originality yeah exactly but uh, you know, it still is worth saying that, you know, Duncan Fogredo's art, uh, you know, for all of his insecurities about it, it still is pretty interesting to look at. Even even the stuff at the beginning where yeah, I love that stuff. Scratchier, you know, like maybe it's 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 a thing that's uh, maybe it's it's something based on personal tastes. But I, I like that look too, like that scratchy Bill Sinkovich style. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's definitely not conventional superhero art, but I I think it's far more interesting to look at personally, you know. Yeah, yeah, I love it, man. It was something that immediately drew me in. Yeah, so yeah. It's, it's just from an aesthetic standpoint, it, it's something that 
appeals to me. It's a lot. very stylish, you know. Yeah. And, like for people who who have this idea of what conventional superhero art looks like, where I just want to see, like I want to be able to look at this panel of this guy of Superman punching this dude, and I just want to look at it for five minutes and just marvel at his muscles and like this guy's face being punched in and the impact and all that. And like, it's not that I don't have an appreciation for that stuff. I've been reading comics for like decades now at this point. So I obviously enjoy that stuff. Right. But Mm -hmm. for the sake of variety and for the sake sake of like, just, uh, art, you know, you want to be able to, uh, expose yourself to various styles and when someone does something different and uh something that pushes the boundaries i welcome that especially if it's interesting to look at you know mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah i think from what i remember the art was another reason why my friend back then wasn't really into it because this it was too different you know it wasn't jim yeah. lee and that's another actually that's another artist that it kind of reminds me of now that we're meant talking about it is it it, it also kind of made me think of Chris Bacalo a little bit. Mm. You know? He's Yeah. There there's similarities in their styles uh just in in terms of like how scratchy it looks and like even murky at points, you know? Are you are you thinking of Chris Bacalo in general or specifically uh like the early 90s his early 90s period because his art did evolve quite a bit over time i'm thinking more of the early 90s period like the first thing that like when he was dropping was shade the changing man shade the changing man a little bit of generation x uh yeah that's that's kind of what i had in mind yeah mm-hmm. yeah you know but i yeah there's you know, comics is a vast and wild landscape, and there's more than enough space and room for all kinds of artists, unless you're Jim Lee. <laughs> <laughs> unless you're Todd McFarland. <laughs> but, but yeah, like I, 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 I definitely think just in terms of the designs of these characters, like. Let, let's take a look at some of the villains that he he was describing like yeah i i had no idea really what i was looking at for for quite a few of them the head for example the head is this super villain who goes up to people sticks a sticks a essentially a straw into their head through their nose and yeah. sucks out their brain matter and yeah uh, gets it makes high. his head gets bigger yeah and it's I don't I I I couldn't for for the life of me really understand what it was that I was looking at, but it was still so interesting to look at, you know. Whereas mm-hmm. there are so many artists who draw things where I don't know what I'm looking at, and it's not interesting to look at. It's just bad, do, you know. Do you think uh, Chris Bacalo looked at the head and and then came up with M plate? <laughs> Right? That's that's <laughs> the thing that made me think of that. <laughs> but um yeah, like his I, I I think there's definitely something there in Duncan Fogredo's art that shows that if he wanted to do superhero and supervillain designs, he's capable of it. 
you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, I'm trying to think. The other one that I thought was kind of cool was uh, Envelope Girl. Yeah. Just the way that she looks and how her powers manifest. Um, like, her whole thing is she is just a giant envelope that sucks you in. And once you're within her... Like, the envelope is almost like a dress. It's it's uh, It's got a low cut on her, so... Uh, you know, it wraps around her body and her face is still just like a person, right? Mm -hmm. But then when the envelope uh, slash dress opens up, it sucks you in, kind of like a cloak from Cloak and Dagger, right? Mm -hmm. And once you're inside uh, her body, like, you reappear. You get mailed away. <laughs> yeah, you get, you, reappear, you get mailed away and you reappear in this box or package uh in just this random place and you pop it you pop it open and that's just what happens to you <laughs> <laughs> it's a funny idea man it's it's out there man yeah it's pretty, that's bizarre <laughs> that, that's an absurdist like this this book has an absurdist take on superheroes in a similar manner to uh like grant morrison on uh doom patrol i think when uh richard case was drawing it like they came up with some pretty weird villains too like the there was the whole Brotherhood of Dada. Like that's that's probably uh -huh. the one that I remember the most, and and yeah. the painting that ate Paris. Like just just really bizarre things that that are superhuman or supernatural. Yeah. But they're they're not really rooted in science. They're more rooted in like just that's wild fantastic. imagination. Yeah. 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 No, I. But I think that's part of that's definitely part of the fun of it is i think often as is the case we we're accustomed to these super villains that you know that make sense quote unquote make sense on some level right dr octopus is a guy who got mechanical arms fused to his body there's a there's a certain logic to that but <laughs> Right? I can't I mean, tell if you're making fun of him or, or being serious. Well, I mean, let me finish my thought. So, it's within the confines of science fiction, there's a certain logic to it. But then, when you really stop and think about it, and you admit to yourself, well, this is, this is an act of science fiction. You can kind of do anything if you really wanted. Like, just taking that into account and just pushing the envelope of creativity and imagination by just making these really far out there characters with almost, well, I, w I wouldn't say incomprehensible powers, but powers that you really have to sit and de deconstruct, you know, sit and like process in order to like fully get the effect of what their powers are. Mm -hmm. Like, even if it takes you a couple of extra seconds to stop and think about it, there's something about that that's uh, pretty special. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 I agree. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, and they really did come up with some creative characters here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, while we're on the subject of of craft, I do like we we talked about it earlier, but uh, you know, I'm uh, I feel like it's worth including. It's again like so much of the book is 
these characters talking to each other in different settings and you know it's worth mentioning again like just their ability to draw these in ways that that keep you as a reader engaged and that that looks dynamic on the page like mm-hmm. that's that is a is says something about their level of skill their their craft in here right yeah because again so many other uh comic book writers don't know how to do that don't know how to tell those stories where these characters are having a conversation and it doesn't look boring or and it does look boring you know mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. Uh, you know that's 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 definitely worth acknowledging here and even the scenes that are action-packed, they're pretty exciting, too. Like it's, They are. They are. Like Yeah, like, as dynamic as his everyday scenes are, he, he's able, Figueroa's able to draw pretty exciting stuff, too. And also gotta, gotta mention the colors, Sherlin, Van Valkenburg. Like, there are some pages that are just stunning. Like, I really like what she does with uh just the contrasts on some things like i'm looking at um well unfortunately the the hardcover doesn't have page numbers but uh at the beginning of issue three like the first splash page of issue three it's it's the scene when they're outside of the church where the truth is fighting the enigma inside and michael and titus are standing at the police cordon looking at at the church or cathedral um i don't know what you call it i guess it's cathedral but uh the way that it's colored like there's a fire in the cathedral uh-huh. and and it's at this is all taking place at night so like there's this really stark reddish orange color and then yeah, there's a vibrant. helicopter yeah it's vibrant really vibrant and yeah. then there's um like the way that the fire is colored is is really detail too like there's there's like multiple gradients in there uh-huh. and i don't like it's 1993 so i don't i don't think she used a computer but so i'm not i'm not really exactly sure how how she achieved the effects here uh but it, it's impressive looking fire but the the shading on the cathedral is just about perfect and there's a a police helicopter uh you know shining a spotlight on the building and that's just black and white you know it it, and it makes it really interesting to look at even uh michael and titus they're on the ground looking up at what's going on and they're just in black and white as well like i i really like the way that page looks in terms of its colors Mm -hmm. um and and there's just there are a, a whole bunch of scenes throughout the book where the colors are just so so pleasing man like i don't yeah it it looks kind of like uh i think i think it's painted but i I, i'm not sure like what the technical process is because i I just don't know enough about coloring um and the technical elements of it especially yeah in this period but it's uh it's really well done man i was gonna say that's another thing about the fact that this new deluxe hardcover came out even though i have that old paperback I did want to see what it looked like in, you know, in in its most updated form, you know, just to get the colors in 
in the most freshest, fullest effect. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I was comparing the two because I still have my paperback as well. Mm-hmm. The the colors in the hardcover are sharper. I don't yeah. necessarily know if that means it's better or not. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just a noticeable it's it's slightly noticeable. I think I think if you have them side by side, that that's when it's like obviously noticeable because you can you can compare yeah. them. Yeah. And which is what I did, but um Yeah, I guess now that I think about it, I'm flipping through my paperback and yeah, comparatively it it is it does come off as a little faded, but yeah. I'm not sure if that's because my paperback That might be the paper. Old. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It should just be the paper. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's I I I don't know about you, but I do get like some enjoyment. It, it's that new comic book feeling, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, like for for us to get the book in this new format after years of having it in the paperback it it just feels fresh again you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah i love it man another thing any... that uh oh, oh i was gonna say uh the writing itself like some of the the prose is just really amusing and highly entertains me and uh i i, I took some pictures of some panels that had some lines that I thought were amusing. Yeah. I'll post them on the Instagram yeah. throughout the week, but I'll just read a couple excerpts just to give people a taste of the humor. And and th- here's here's a panel where the the text is just the narration from the from the narrator and it's during a scene when when Michael is kind of wandering and he's he's looking into a phone booth and the the text says sometimes he feels like a rumor drifting through a world of hard facts what's the point of you michael <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's just another example of like number 1 a funny line and then number 2 the narrator is just ridiculing the protagonist like <laughs> he and he just does it throughout the the story and it it never it never gets old yeah then there's this other scene it's after michael gets hurt and he's in the hospital and his girlfriend is standing by or sitting by his his bedside while he's you know hooked up to tubes and whatnot lying in bed unconscious and the narrator says the truth is she's never really liked him as much as she likes him now now that he's crippled and almost dead Mm. (laughs) (laughs) it's a funny observation man yeah 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 like it's one of those things where you know how they say only the court jester is allowed to speak the truth to the king yeah (laughs) it's like there could be some truth to that but man if that if that is true that hurts (laughs) yeah yeah, this, there's just like a bunch of lines throughout the book that gave me so much enjoyment and made me smile as as I was reading the series again. Yeah, it's yeah the everything's so well constructed. I, I one thing I did want to ask you about the story was what you thought about the ending. And mm. we don't I don't want to talk about the last page because I, I want to save something for you know in case people are listening and they haven't read it leave them you know don't spoil that but uh yeah. just in terms of like the overall ending what what were your 
thoughts on it? So I want to, so I'll try to be as vague, but as descript as I can at the same time. Um, well, okay. First of all, I wanted to make a comment on what you were saying earlier in terms of just how clever the dialogue and the, the words are mm-hmm. in the comic. Um, I do think that the way Peter Milligan writes, um, like I, I really do enjoy just the the interior monologues that he gives to all the characters and uh, just the way he narrates everything. It's it it feels like it's the most idealized version of what you would want people's interior monologues to sound like, right? Like mm-hmm. it, it, in the same way that in Snarky. a movie. Well, I mean, it's just perfect, right? How everyone has the perfect thing to say or perfect response. It's 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 the way that when you know when you watch a movie, like everyone's uh, dialogue with everybody else is just perfect. It, it just uh, flows. They don't stutter and fumble over. Yeah, the words exactly. The way that exactly. While we record this podcast, exactly. It flows well. <laughs> it sounds good. Everything just uh, vibes with what other people have to say and um and yeah yeah that i i do think i i have a lot of appreciation for their ability to write that you know for sure yeah Um, yeah there's there's definitely a a really pleasant rhythm to his writing exactly exactly um now in terms of the ending of the book uh how do i put this without giving away too much well so after everything that happens over the course of this story, uh, Michael Michael has had his epiphany. He's awoken to to whatever realizations he's made. Uh, but in terms of what actually goes on the, in the story uh, uh, with the characters, it's left openly ambiguous you know they mm-hmm. don't uh yeah it, it's an ending where the you know we we've had the emotional and thematic closure of the story but in terms of the actual plot it doesn't it it doesn't play out or, or like they've continued they've decided they've made the decision not to continue the plot any further beyond that point because i it it feels almost abrupt but i think as a choice it's a pretty unique choice and it's a pretty clever choice because it just highlights the idea that the the emotional journey was what was important here he went through uh michael went through his emotional journey. He had his discoveries, had his realization, and all that other stuff, It's it kind of doesn't matter, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. in terms of the, the, the plot, like, it's not that kind of story, I guess. It's, it's not about the superhero beating yeah. the bad guy. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, I do have appreciation for that. I do think it's clever. Um... I remember prior to starting this episode, I did ask you whether this was a book that 
ended prematurely. Um, I don't know if it had anything to do with how the ending played out. I, I, I feel like just over the years, I just got it in my head that this was a book that was canceled before its time, but uh, you clarified to me that that wasn't the case. So, Right. Yeah. yeah, this was planned as an eight-issue miniseries. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I do think with the knowledge that that was uh, a conscious decision on their part, I yeah, I, I I'd say I have more appreciation for that for that reality, you know, mm-hmm. for that uh, fact. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I, I brought it up because uh, I could I could see some people finding it anticlimactic or just offbeat. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. I, yeah, that's why I was curious as to what you thought about it. Well, I do love stuff like that. Like I'm a big fan of uh, what's it called. I'm a bit, a big fan of films like uh, uh, I forget his name. Uh, but the guy who did like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and uh, mm-hmm. Charlie Kaufman. I'm a I'm a huge fan of those kind of quirky. Uh, like existential stories yeah uh, where the ending doesn't have to be doesn't always have to be definitive you know mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the times it's it's in the experience of it and it's in the uh in 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 the journey of the story itself um like one of the things that I, i've talked about this quite a bit uh I don't remember if I ever mentioned it in a podcast, but it's something that I've mentioned to you in just other media that I've experienced or uh, enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But one of the things, one of the endings that I have like a huge appreciation for, and this isn't a big surprise, is uh, The Sopranos. Mm, and yeah. uh, it's it's an ending that's pretty infamous. Like a lot of people hate this ending. So... Uh, you know, so I don't think I'm spoiling anything, but the way that the movie or the series ends is with uh, after everything that's happened in Tony Soprano's life, after he survives this huge gang war, um, what ends up happening is the very final scene of the series takes place in this diner uh, where he's sitting with his family and he's just sitting there. And uh, even though he's he's sit- surrounded by his family and they're about to eat dinner uh the diner is just filled with these shifty looking characters like they're not doing anything in particular that openly indicates that they're uh going to do something hostile or aggressive towards tony but Mm -hmm. just the way that they're filmed just the way that they're uh shown through the eye of the camera it just builds this tension that makes you question like why are we focusing on this person and uh you know what why are they like sitting a certain way there's 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 a lot of unease in the scene and it just builds all this tension up and uh there's constant movement as more and more people are either entering the diner or exiting the diner and you hear this bell ringing for every time the door opens and it's mm-hmm. just constantly ratcheting up this sense of oh there's so much going on like what's happening and then just as uh you know just as um 
you get to the the height of all this uh, tension going on, you see Tony Soprano one last time, and it just cuts to static. You know, it's mm-hmm. just snow. And a lot of people thought that their TVs broke down or something, <laughs> you know, and they weren't really sure what was going on. But that ending, a lot of people at the time really hated it. And I think uh, right now we might be at a point in time uh, where a lot of people actually have more appreciation for it now and realize that it's kind of a masterpiece as an ending. Um, I, I think a lot of people hated that sudden cut to black because they wanted to know whether tony soprano was going to get assassinated or not how was the series going to end and to just have nothing they felt robbed of something you know Mm -hmm. and i always felt like that the ending the point of the ending wasn't whether he lived or died the point of the ending was that in the build-up to that final moment you you get that feeling of unease and tension, right? So yeah. that you you get you share that same sense of uh you you share that same sense of uh fear and anxiety that Tony Soprano is going to live with for the rest of his life. And it doesn't matter whether he lives for the in the next 5 seconds or if he lives for the next 5 years, like at at the end of it all what matters is that this is just what his life is going to be like from now on. And like, I, I don't think people got that, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I, I love the, the ambiguity of that ending. And, uh, in recent years, uh, in this past year, actually in 2021, um, I forgot the, the creator of the show, but he, he recently put out a movie that was supposed to be a prequel to the Sopranos. That's and right. I think, and the thing about that is he's been doing a lot of press junkets and uh, and while he's been doing a lot of the press for to promote the movie, he's actually answered like they they made a lot of news about the fact that he revealed the fa- the fate of Tony Soprano, like maybe not directly, but enough so that you know certain fans can tell themselves, "Oh, now I can tell myself for sure." That this is what his absolute fate was at the end of that scene. You Wait, know? so he he told people in interviews what happened, or he told them through the movie? Uh, he told people in interviews. Oh, okay. Yeah, which I thought. Huh. Yeah, I thought that was like for the longest time he, uh, whenever he did interviews, he just kind of left it uh up he'd in the coy. air. Yeah. yeah, he'd be coy about it, right? But. You know, he's the creator of the show, and, you know, I still have, like, loads of respect for what he did. But it's it, it definitely was a thing where I was like, oh, I didn't really want to know that. I didn't need to know that, you know? But does like, him saying that affect how you consume the show? No, no, absolutely yeah. not. Like, I still I still take the ending for what it is, and I, I appreciate it for what it is. And I think that that's my preferred ending. And, uh... Yeah, you know, so that's my long was, way of... Is your preferred ending different from the ending that he said happens? Uh, I don't, So, the, okay, so I think... Not I think, but what happens in the interviews is 
I don't think he changes the ending, but what he does is he gives a definitive. Uh, he he tells people. Or, yeah, Tony he more or less tells people was like, killed or wasn't killed in that. Yeah, manner. exactly, exactly, okay. exactly. So, but to me that still doesn't matter because the point of it. It's not in it, the. It's not in the show. Yeah, one, it's not in the show, and like two, like I still, I just don't think that was the point of it, you know? Yeah. Like it's a pretty like reductive way to watch it like i don't know it I, I just feel like we it's okay to have a little bit of mystery in your life it's okay to not know things it's okay to uh, uh experience this yeah. and explore the the thematic thematic content of what you're experiencing as opposed to watching it to to see whether a leads to b you know? Yeah. Like yeah. it just it just feels pretty hollow to watch it just for that. And uh likewise, you know, that long anecdote just to get back to Enigma, like I I I I, th- I definitely think that was the point. Like they even say as much, I think, at towards the end where uh as the characters go off to uh, an uncertain fate, like you know, it just does like I I have to look for it, but it it basically just doesn't matter because mm-hmm. uh you know the 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 main part of the story the the ideas of it we're we're done with that we've experienced it and that's okay you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I would recommend more people uh who who enjoy any sort of entertainment just you know, take the opportunity to try to appreciate those ideas and, uh, yeah, and just live with the fact that you don't always get definitive endings, you know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Like, there definitely, there's definitely something to be said about being able to take in an ending that maybe maybe at first glance does not fully satisfy you in in terms of giving you what you want but it's good to you're you become a better reader when you're able to step back and and question like what is it about the ending that is unsatisfying is it actually because it was poorly written or something wasn't uh thought out very well or there was a lack of foreshadowing to build up to this that mm-hmm. i can't buy into it or is it is it really just because i don't like it because the thing i wanted to happen didn't happen you yeah know? and and i think people who, who read they stories mistake that for a bad story <laughs> yeah exactly that's exactly yeah. what i was getting at and and i find i find that troublesome because i i have a lot of friends who I think they consume media like that where if if they don't sometimes they don't like something because what they wanted to happen didn't happen on the screen, you know? And that that just boggles my mind. Yeah. Like it when you go and appreciate or like and take in someone else's work of art sometimes you just have to take the good with the bad and that's just the reality of it uh and you know 
I, I'd say that there there are cases where things happen where uh, a person's not satisfied with an ending. And maybe this sounds kind of snide on my part, but, you know, there's nothing wrong with, hey, if there's a story that you like, that you want to tell, then by all means, go and tell that story, you know, like add to the ether of it all. Go write by, a fanfic. <laughs> yeah, go, you know, and by all means, if, if it does well, then, you know, get receive whatever validation you think you need, right? Yeah. But, uh. You know, but for what it is, the the creators here, they made a choice. And uh, I think it's more interesting to examine what it is their choices are and why those choices were made and what they mean than it is to, you know, look for something that's satisfying. Like, that isn't to say that you can't all that you always have to have something that you can't ever have something that just satisfies you on that level. But I do think if you're going to, uh, uh, consume someone else's art, you should go into it with an open mind as opposed to, I don't like how that ended, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Especially when, especially when things intentionally end in a way to leave you with that feeling of whether it's a lack of closure or just with yeah. uh, mist- a mystery left somewhat unsolved like if if that's how the story intentionally ended then it should behoove you to think about why does the story yeah. end that way yeah. you know like the like there was clearly yeah. something in that story that you liked to begin with. You followed the journey of this story up to this point. Well, I mean, unless you just read it out of spite or because <laughs> you were compelled to. But theoretically, if you read it up to that point, I'm not saying that endings can't necessarily ruin the story as a whole. Uh you know, we talked about this uh, in our ep- endings episode, but I-, I would say, you know, to really be open-minded and uh, just view these endings with a critical eye, you know, just uh, in- instead of throwing like a tantrum for when 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 you don't get what you want. Or, or or whatever like exactly like it just makes more sense to to really view it through the lens of what is actually being said you know yeah yeah exactly and w- one thing that i did learn this week when i watched that comics experience interview with milligan and figredo they they did talk a little bit about the ending of enigma and I don't remember the exact quotation, but the gist of what Milligan said was that he wanted that to be the ending because he wanted to show people the story wasn't about the superheroic aspects. You know, it wasn't about the Enigma beating up all these villains. Like that mm-hmm. was beside the point. Yeah. And it's like what we've been talking about this whole episode. The point of the story was about Michael Smith's journey into 
you know, growing and growing comfortable with his own identity and coming out of the closet. Yeah. You know, that that's what the story was about. It was about his character arc. So there's no real reason to focus unnecessarily on these battle scenes. And in yeah. fact, I believe Milligan said that he he made it a point to to do that ending because he wanted he wanted people to see that that stuff wasn't important. Yeah, but I have a feeling that most people didn't take that lesson, <laughs> didn't get that res- lesson, unfortunately. Funny thing is, is if you watch that video and turn on the the live chat, so you, you can actually see like the, because they live streamed it at the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you can see the chat box where people are commenting and asking questions and things. One person did say that when he first read Enigma, he hated the ending, and it wasn't until like he thought about it after the after he read it that he felt like it challenged him, and then eventually he grew to like it. But yeah, his knee jerk reaction in the beginning or at the the first time he read it was, "What is this?" You yeah. know, and I can totally imagine that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, now that you've we've we've discussed it a little bit, and yeah, I, I've had the chance to examine uh, just the question a little bit more. I, I do think I do really have to acknowledge that I have a lot of appreciation for those kinds of endings, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I I definitely went through a, a stage in my life where I was just all about Charlie Kaufman films and all about just these uh, openly ambiguous endings uh, to the point where I was just seeking them out. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's your sweet spot. It it really was, man. It's uh, there's just something about it about uh, I don't know. Maybe 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 that was that period of my life where I was just looking for something that left me feeling kind of uh, emo or whatever, but mm-hmm. it, it did it for me, you know? So, Have you ever watched the music video for the Radiohead song, Just? I don't think I have. What happens in that one? So I think that one has an ending you'll like. I'm just going to spoil it for you, but uh-huh. they... they they play the song and uh, the story, the video follows a day in the life of like a regular guy getting ready to go to work. Uh-huh, and he's just, uh-huh. you know, he puts on his suit um, and then he walks outside onto the street on the sidewalk. And then uh, for whatever reason, he just lies, him, lays himself down on the ground um, on his back and he's just lying there on the sidewalk. And then as people start walking by, they start asking him like, are you okay? What's wrong? And all of the, all of this dialogue is just in subtitles. So uh-huh, uh-huh. you don't, there's no sound. It's, it's just the music playing. So you're just reading the, the, the subtitles and people are walking up to this guy on the ground saying, are you okay? What's wrong? Uh, do you need help? And he's just telling them, no, I'm fine. I don't need anything. And then they start asking him like, why are you lying on the ground then? Like, what, what is this? And he's like, no, you don't want to know. And you know, Eventually, this big, massive crowd of people surround him, and everybody's just asking him, like, why are you on the <laughs> ground? 
tell us. And then he looks at them and he's like, okay, you really want to know? And everybody's like, yes, tell us. <laughs> and then at this point, the camera zooms in on his lips and he starts talking. But at this point, they they stop showing you subtitles so you don't know what he says. <laughs> and then like the final shot is a pan of the sidewalk and everybody is lying on the ground now, like the entire crowd of people. <laughs> I like that, man. I do like yeah. that. There's... Yeah, that, that was clever. Yeah. That's definitely a, a thing where I'd have to examine what the what the lyrics are to really make me get the full context of what's going on. You know? Yeah, yeah. Go on YouTube later and, and look at that video, man. It's fun. Yeah. I, I remember radio, showing man. that to people and, and people would, my friends would get mad at me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's fair to say that the majority of people, uh, they they want definitive endings you know they like having that closure yeah i mean i just enjoyed withholding closure from people (laughs) 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 that's why i showed them that video man because i knew that i knew that it would bug them yeah have you uh like i know you share you know uh, a lot of recommendations with uh friends and stuff but do you think, like, do you think you've you've come around to changing anybody's mind on 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 those kinds of endings, where to the point where they've come to appreciate not getting closure? I don't think I I don't know if I can say I've changed anybody's mind. If yeah, I, I just feel like the, the people that I know, my the friends that I have who who, uh, you know, kind of vibe with the same kind of storytelling that, that you and I would vibe with. Yeah. Like, those are the kind of people that I would probably gravitate towards in terms of, like, yeah. recommending stuff. Because I feel like they would actually not only take the recommendation seriously and, and eventually give it a shot at some point, but yeah. they would appreciate it, too, you know? Like, yeah. certain other friends, I know that their taste in stories is, like, straight whack. So yeah. even if I gave them filet mignon they would be like not into it you know because yo where's my pigeon yeah <laughs> <laughs> where's my pigeon fried, where's my rat on a stick yeah. <laughs> I'm like living in fallout here man it's like yeah. give me a rat on a stick it reminds and, me of oh go ahead no nah, no nah, i wasn't really saying anything of substance i was gonna say it reminds me of another uh uh, ending that I, I personally love, but I don't. I I I want to say that most people hate it, but the ending to Neon Genesis Evangelion. Yeah, Evangelion. Yeah, Evangelion. Like that's something where once you get to the last two episodes, it's it just becomes a mishmash of just uh, exposition and ideas and imagery. Like yeah. it, it doesn't really make too much sense at all. But unless you think about it, then yeah, it starts to make true. sense. Yeah. It, but it's something that really requires you like over the course of the plot of the series, uh, it, it starts out pretty conventional, but as time goes, especially once you get towards the end, it just, most people would probably think that it goes off the rails, but then it just becomes again, this just, uh, 
just just because something is about abstract ideas doesn't mean yeah. it goes off the rails. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What I feel like mo- what most people wanted was I want to know what happens to the robots. I want to know what happens <laughs> to the characters. Yeah. And it's just I don't know, man. Like I, I it bugs me that people that the people that didn't like it didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, man. And it's it's an interesting comparison in in uh in light of our conversation on Enigma because the TV series Evangelion definitely ends the story with the self-actualization of the protagonist, you know, like this, it turns out the story wasn't really about why are these angels attacking earth, but it, yeah. it's, it's about, it's not about the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it, I mean, it, in a way it, it's, it's more about the apocalypse of a, it's a personal of a young boy's heart, yeah, you know, exactly. It, it's exactly. Shinji's apocalypse. Yeah. And, and, yeah, so it's it's like his it's about his his growth the same way that Enigma is about Michael Smith's growth, you know. It, it's not so much about the action and all the all the window dressing like that. That's just there to provide an entertaining context for the abstract discussion that's taking place on an internal <laughs> level. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, now that we bring it up, there there does feel like there's quite a bit of overlap between these two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Well, I think I already know the answer to this, but does Enigma <laughs> withstand the test of time, Albert? I'd say so. It's it, it's something that rewards rereading multiple reads of it, and, uh, and, and as we've expressed time and time again uh, in this episode, uh, having reread it, we've discovered new things about it and uh, we've added to the growing conversation that surrounds it over time. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like that couldn't be any greater of an indicator of its ability to withstand the t- test of time. It, it feels like a living and breathing work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent, um, man. Yeah. It's unfortunate that, uh, um, you know, people, don't always or didn't always recognize it then but now that it's out uh in this new deluxe hardcover form and uh available on uh digital like it's your chance to uh experience it you know and to keep it alive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah do you have any final thoughts about enigma uh no i i'm i'm satisfied with it it's it's uh, I, well, okay, I'll go back to what I said earlier, which was I, I do think that this is a book that was smarter than me. There there are things about it here where I didn't really pick up on it until I was – there There were certain things that happened over the course of the story that I didn't pick up on until I was actually discussing it with you. But, you know, that, you know, that just goes to – goes back to what I was saying earlier about how – you know, rereading it again is just going to heighten my appreciation for it over time, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I, I do like reading challenging books, too, you know, like challenging comics. It's it's satisfying to to have to work to understand something. Yeah. Like, 
I, I, I don't get me wrong. I understand that there can be times when something is so obtuse that it can be difficult and unpleasant to even bother trying to untangle. But I don't, I don't think this is that complicated or, or that inscrutable. Like this is, this is like just challenging enough. I think where you won't get frustrated very easily trying to make sense of it. But if you like to read comics that give you that extra level of involvement, just in terms of forcing you to engage with the text and think about the ideas underneath the surface, it'll be a pretty satisfying experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. Well put. What would you recommend to people who enjoyed Enigma? Uh, one of the things that popped to mind was uh, a book by J.M. Dumitaeus called Brooklyn Dreams. Mm. Um, I forget who the artist is. Do you know, Drew? I think it was, I want to say Glenn Barr. Okay. Yeah, I, I think it's a book that shares similarities to Enigma in the sense that it's, it's a it's a journey of self-discovery of a, of a person's awakening, you know, mm-hmm. um, it, it's not necessarily a sexual awakening, but there I, is I sex in it. There is sex in it. I, I think it's apt, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's also got a, a postmodern feel to it as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well put, well put. Um, other than would, that, would you put uh, would you put Moonshadow in that same category? Huh. Would that be actually? Like, now that you mention it, Moonshadow I, I think counts too. Uh, that's yeah, especially when you take into the consideration how Moonshadow ends. Mm-hmm. I, I'd say so. Yeah. So there we go, Moonshadow by J.M.D. Mateus as well. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. John J. Muth. Muth. Yeah. Yeah. Muth. I'm not sure how to pronounce his yeah. last name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but those are two good choices. Um, uh, you know, there's also definitely uh, the other comics in uh, uh, Peter Milligan's body of work. Uh, yeah. He, uh, you mentioned this in discussion, uh, uh, but... He he's he's another one of those writers that tends to re-explore uh, similar themes uh, through throughout all his works. So yeah, and yet his execution is always so different. It I, I'm endlessly yeah. fascinated. Yeah, especially when it comes to to uh usually his his creator-owned work. I mean, I'm not saying that his uh his work for hire stuff is is just all phoned in or anything because there's clearly stuff that he's done for for marvel and, and dc that withstand the test of time but i think and, and even and even in those books i, I think he does explore uh, a lot of issues of identity and even sexual sexuality however his uh creator on books he, he's able to plumb those depths in a i guess in a more mature way because he's he's not always be in that case he's he won't be beholden to a lot of the editorial mandates or anything exactly exactly yeah yeah 
What about you, Drew? You got anything you'd recommend? I think the other Milligan and Figredo comics definitely stand out. Um, I don't know how easily available they are. I, I didn't check online to see if they're on Comixology. There's a chance they might not be. And, and uh, you might have to dig through the back issue bins to find these. But they, Milligan and Figredo did do a couple more Vertigo comics together. They did a one-shot called Face. That's like a 56 or a 64-page issue. And it's about uh, plastic surgery and identity. That one was a really great piece of work. It, it's as, as far as single issues go, that one feels more like a like a may, maybe like a graphic novella, you know, because it's it, it's thick enough and dense enough in terms of its uh, thematic content that it it feels you know juicy like that. They did a comic called Girl, which was a three issue miniseries. I believe it was three issues. Um, another exploration of identity and sexuality this time from the point of view of a female character uh the other comics they did together i know that i can think of are superhero comics they did flowers for rhino which was a spider-man story <laughs> in tangled web i think we talked about that in in a yeah. in an old episode it's a great uh story and uh it's something that we've i feel like we've mentioned several times but it's it's worth mentioning. <laughs> yeah, and even a story like that is fascinating in his overall uver because it, it's another exploration of identity and heightened awareness and and coming into self actualization. It just has a a tragic ending compared to something like Enigma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they did a a Scarecrow comic at one point. You know, the Batman villain. It was like a an Arkham one shot or something back in the nineties. Um, yeah, they, they've. So I think they they've done stuff that would please anybody who who enjoyed Enigma. It's just that it might be a little tougher to find those books. Uh, just yeah, I'm just gonna be name checking a bunch more Milligan comics here, but the ones that are really outstanding, especially uh, if you liked Enigma, I would say you should check out The Extremist, The Names. Both of those were Vertigo books uh, from really different eras. Like The Extremist was another early Vertigo title. I mentioned that earlier in this episode. The Names was, it came out towards the end of Vertigo's reign. Um, Leandro Fernandez drew it. It's another story about self-discovery, but it, it takes, uh, this time the trapping is a, a financial, the, the financial crisis and deals with a lot of uh, business-minded elements. There's a book he did for Image called The Discipline that also had art by Leandro Fernandez. That one was another, That one felt like a thematic uh, sequel or, or successor to The Extremist. It, it's another one that explored sexuality. And finally, uh, Human Target. Milligan's run on Human Target. He had a few artists. The main ones were... Javier Pulido and Cliff Chang. That one, just a great action comic. I know currently Tom King is doing a Human Target series. I haven't read it, but just looking at the art, it, it feels like he probably read Milligan's run before mm -hmm. he did his run, I would imagine. 
some Figredo comics. He he hasn't really been super active in in comics. And from what I gathered listening to his interview with Brian Hibbs on Comics Experience, it's I think it's because he's been doing storyboarding work. Oh. Yeah. So like. Has he worked on any uh, movies or anything like that that uh, we'd recognize? I think he mentioned them, but I, I just I can't remember them right now. Yeah, I, I don't remember. But uh, yeah, I mean it's it's not super surprising because I'm sure storyboarding for Hollywood is Pays. better money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, uh, he did have a big run on Hellboy at one point. And oh. he did uh, MPH with Mark Miller. I think that might have been his most recent comic. And that was already Ooh, that like was a while ago. Five or seven years ago, right? I want to say more. Like, I- I'd have to look it up to say for certain, but I-, I feel like that's been around for a while, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, I don't really remember too well because it's been a while since I read it, but... Uh, what about something like Shade the Changing Man? Oh, yeah, totally. Another one yeah. that's hard to find. I guess it, it might be online. I'm not I'm not sure. It might be digital. Yeah. I forget, yeah. did Bacolo draw that one? Bacolo drew a bunch of it for the yeah. first 50 issues. With the, you know, there were some fill-in artists here and there. Yeah. I, I can't remember if Figredo drew any issues. I know Sean Phillips had a short run. I think Michael Lark did a couple issues. That's uh, a pretty great company to be in yeah mark buckingham yeah. i think there was even an issue that had art by uh brendan mccarthy oh nice. nice yeah he did a bunch of the early covers too yeah that that's one of that might be my favorite dc series so Ooh. yeah definitely recommend that it's again it's just one of those things where it's it's not easy to obtain because it's not like they've yeah. made an omnibus or a bunch of trade paperbacks of it yeah, I forget. Was did you mention that that was something where they tried to make a trade paperback of it and they just quit halfway through? They didn't even get halfway. I I don't think they made more than three or volumes. maybe four volumes of Shade before they yeah. quit. Yeah. So it it lasted. I think the series was about I want to say around seventy seventy two issues maybe. Yeah. Somewhere in in the ball in that ballpark. And I think the trades collected up to like issue twenty or something. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. And I yeah. I know that there are some things where DC has uh even though there aren't collected editions on comicsology, like there are cases where if you're forced to uh, you can find the single issues on Comixology, so hopefully that's... I mean, unfortunately, if that's the only way to read it, that might be the only way to read it. Like, um, like I know with their Spectre, I know they had the two first volumes of uh, the, the paperbacks that they collected. Yeah, the John Ostrander run? Yeah, yeah. But if you can't get the rest of them, they have, like, all the other single issues, but they're just, like, two bucks each, which is... On comicsology, yeah, but at least you could read how it ends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe, maybe there's a way. Like I'd, I'd have to double check to see like how much of shade they actually have, but I'm hoping, uh, you know, 
that's something to get access to someday. Yeah, well, I have all the issues, so you can always borrow mine. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's, uh, again, the beneficial... One of the many benefits of uh, knowing Drew. <laughs> you and I are friends with benefits, man. Why Why do you... Come on, man. <laughs> what are you doing, man? <laughs> what? You said that that was a benefit of knowing me, and I am your friend, aren't we? We're friends, aren't we? Oh, gosh. I don't want to end my night like this. <laughs> what a terrible way to end my night. Dude, you, oh. were, you were the one who brought it up. Yeah. I... I think I think we just have to end it now. I think we just have to we just gotta close it now. Thanks for listening to Between the Gutters, everybody. Peace out. Bye guys. <laughs>